And I see a lot of people here. Thank you, Mike, for showing up in great number. Uh, really nice to see uh, this kind of number. And mind you, this is a raiding kinship, so I got the raiders to come and uh, attend the lower sessions. Um, um, well, since uh, some of you might have uh, known me a little bit from the Lotro players days where I used to write poetry, so I thought it would be an opportune time to write another poem uh, as an introduction to our kin as well as this uh, lecture. Uh, so, <coughs> um, hello, let me tell you a story tonight about our kinship of its glory and might. Casual Raiders is the name of our kin, casuals and hardcores together for the win. It started with bugs with a vision in sight a community of players, close-knit and tight. Then crafters and trophy collectors joined our ranks. We accepted amazing healers, DPSers and tanks. Slowly and steadily it grew, having fun like I never knew. The love for Tolkien forever in heart, always together and never apart. Casual raiders, smoking pipe weed, spreading love, drinking wine, Casual Raiders, all this here, together and stronger, on Brandywine. So hail friends, welcome to the Scholar Hall for another session of lore, where the Tolkien professor explains the books like never before. It's located in Bree, a memory of a time long gone of tales untold, built by mighty men of Numenor, the Edain, in Arnor of old. Each week, meet to explore the Lord of the Rings, as the Harper harps, and the minstrel sings. Together we stand to learn the lore in Ea, in Arda, under the blessing of Eru, of Manve and Varda. Then after the class, to the misty mountains cold, we will go down, down the goblin town, being ever so bold. So without more delay, let me give the stage to Cory of Signum University to explain us the rest of the story. Excellent. Thank you very much. <laughs> that was wonderful. Thank you for the introduction. A poetic introduction is just uh, uh, is just perfect. Thank you. Well, thanks, everybody. Great to be on Brandywine with you here today. Looking forward to our field trip at the end of today's class. Today, we are going to be going to Goblin Town in the Misty Mountains. It's our most exotic field trip yet as we've been in the Shire uh, for the whole first five weeks of the class so far. Um, so yeah, so we're going to go to Goblin Town uh, because we get the... Uh, today we're going to be talking about the story of the ring, uh, which means I'm going to be spending... I'm going to want to be spending a good deal of time talking about Gollum and the Gollum story that Gandalf tells to Frodo, uh, which, you know, is one of those things... Of course, this is really one of the themes of the entire project of exploring the Lord of the Rings is going through and taking a careful look at passages that all of us have kind of taken for granted for years. You know, those of us who are familiar with this story and have read it lots and lots of times, there are some ways in which the more often you read it, the more easy it is to kind of take parts of it for granted and really kind of not recognize some things about it. So it's one of my goals always going through this is to be thinking about some of the stuff that we see that we can notice really for the first time 
uh, if we uh, if we sort of stop and look carefully. And there are a bunch of things about today's section. It's our third class on Chapter 2. Of course, we uh, we looked at the introduction to Chapter 2 and looked at sort of the transition uh, into Frodo and the shift of time forward in the Shire. Of course, we spent a lot of time looking at the conversation between Sam Gamgee and Ted Sandyman in that first class on Chapter 2. Then last week, we looked at the opening of Gandalf's conversation with Frodo, and in particular, the answer to the question that... Um, uh, that 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 Frodo asks, which is, why did you not tell me this earlier? Right? How long have you known this? Is really the the key question that Frodo asks twice, and that we spent most of our time on, because of course so many other people have questions about this as well. Why? How is it? Why uh, that Gandalf? did what he did, how long did he know what he knew, and why did he do what he did? So we talked about that last week, which I was super excited about, because I feel like I understand that so much better than I ever have before, and so I'm really glad that we did that today. We are going to be looking at the continuation. When when the conversation turns away from what is this ring that you have, and uh, what does that mean for you personally, Frodo, and to how did the ring come to me? That's the key question that Frodo asks that Gandalf is answering and that we're going to be spending the rest of our time uh, talking about uh, uh, today. Uh, so that's what we're going to be doing. I wanted just a, a quick reminder, uh, two things. One, uh, if you are in game with us here on the Brandywine server, you're very welcome to come with us. We're going to go, we're going to go and see Gollum's cave, having talked about the Gollum story and goblins or Gollum's entrance into into in, into the goblin-infested mountains. Uh, so we're going to go look at uh, Gollum's uh, habitat and uh, where that story played out in game and how they deal with that in game. Uh, and so this is by far the most complicated uh, trip that we've had to do. Uh, there are people in the uh, Casual Raiders uh, 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 kinship who are sort of standing by to uh, to help transport people there because, of course, it would take a long time to, uh, even in Lotro terms, uh, to ride uh, there uh, to the spot. Uh, so we hope that everybody will uh, will be able to uh, to find a ride. And if you if you need to leave early. Feel free to do that. Don't feel like you have to wait till the very end of the lecture to start traveling. So, um, so that's that's one thing. The other thing is just to remind people that um, we have uh, the 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 text channel uh, called Lore Hall Questions for Corey during the uh, in, on our Discord channel. The link to that should come up uh, on the uh, on the, the the Twitch chat there on the Twitch page. So that if you if you want to make comments and observations and ask questions during the class, I encourage you, uh, please, to uh, uh, to go there. I love to interact with your questions and comments. And there will be a bunch of times that I'm just going to really want to see what you notice uh, as we go through some of these passages. So, um, I, I as I say, I, I encourage you to, uh, uh, to to join me there. All right. So let us talk about the story of the ring. So... Where do we begin? I want to begin where we ended last time. Uh, well, actually, wait, first, before we do the ring poem, which is where I was going to start, I forgot. There are a couple things from our discussion boards, which was the other thing I wanted to mention. Lotro.mythguard.org, you can go to our discussion boards, and in the questions for Narnian section in particular, um, I love to see feedback or comments or questions you have following up on our conversations, especially, of course, for people who are watching or listening to this asynchronously and so don't have a chance uh, to interact live during the the class sessions. Love to hear your thoughts. Uh, and uh, so I try to take some time at the beginning of each session to respond to some of those. And so here are two. 
the first from Amy's Revenge in the reading from episode 5 in chapter 2 Frodo asks uh, what does this have to do with Bilbo and our ring the hour jumped right out at me hit me like an express bus or possibly an express train I would think right as far as we know to this point even though he's possessed it for 17 years Frodo has never actually worn the ring I'm wondering if that's why he's still saying our ring and not my ring um that's a, a that is a really neat point. It certainly does show there are kind of two things here that you can take two little small details from chapter two, which do seem to give a kind of indication of Frodo's own status, sort of the status of Frodo's relationship with the ring, which, of course, saying it like that makes it sound like there should be some kind of Facebook indicator uh, to show your particular relationship with the ring, Um, but um, uh, which would actually be a really funny little meme. But that's not what I mean. Uh, what What is the status of his relationship with the ring? He is clearly, on the one hand, not yet obsessed with it, right? It has not really fully taken hold of him yet. And I agree that I think that that point is a really good one. The fact that he still thinks of the ring as our ring, my ring and Bilbo's, right? The ring that Bilbo had and the ring that I now has. It's not like he necessarily, I mean, that, I don't think we need necessarily take that as, as a concept of joint ownership, right? That he really is thinking in terms of joint ownership of the ring with Bilbo. But rather that he uh, um, that he still thinks of it as Bilbo's ring. You know, it, it's the ring that used to be Bilbo's, right? And so he still thinks of it as Bilbo's ring because it's the ring that Bilbo had for all those years. And now, of course, it's his, so he calls it our ring. But, of course, it is, I, I absolutely agree, it's a very conspicuous moment because that desire to lay claim upon the ring, right, that desire to make your own right to have it without doubt, right, the, 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 the desire to stake your claim that it is yours and belongs to you rightfully is the clearest indicator of the ring getting hold, right? That was the thing that alarmed Gandalf so much, obviously, um, in his conversation with Bilbo. And, of course, it's the way, it's the very direct way in which Bilbo was reflecting Gollum's own obsession, right? As we're going to learn more about later on tonight. So, um, so I agree. It is, therefore, in that way, a very good sign that Frodo is still calling the ring our ring um, and not kind of sort of trying to push away Bilbo's long ownership of the ring. Um, but of course, as I said, there are a couple indications, right? Another indicator is the moment that came at the end of the passage we were looking at last week uh, when Frodo had a hard time uh, getting himself to throw it in. Actually, no way, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of a, I'm thinking of a different kind. He, he hands it to Gandalf at the end of last time. It's later in the chapter that uh, he sh- shows himself to be unable to throw the ring into his own fire with the intention of destroying it, right? Well, that's a passage we'll get to next week. Um, But again, it shows the ring is not yet in control of him, and yet the ring has some... um, the ring has some hold on him already. Uh, So that, I think, is... um, I guess... Sorry. It's going to be... changing my volume here um that that i think is is a really important um element um in uh in the story um so we but but anyways i just wanted to i I wanted to 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 quote that because i do think it's a really good uh observation there um the second one is from not a cat uh were the seven rings for the dwarves and the nine rings for mortal men made in batches that way or were there just 16 rings which happened to be handed out in those numbers? 
Was there anything that particularly distinguished a dwarf ring from a mortal ring, or could they have been swapped without altering the purpose or the outcome? Now, we don't know, right? We have to say right up front, no, I mean, we, we have no very firm data on this. Um, what we mostly know, we read last time, right? So we already, we've already looked at the data. However, I would, there are a couple things that lead me to conclude that uh, um, I, I, I think they were made in batches, specifically. The one thing that leads me to believe that is that we know that there are seven major clans of dwarves. There were the seven fathers of the dwarves, each one of which is the is sort of the the the, the leader of a uh, of a family of dwarves, a clan of dwarves. Um, that seems to be not a coincidence, right? I mean, there's so each family gets one, and there are seven rings that. Sounds like a plan. Doesn't it sound like a plan? Right? So I'm thinking that Sauron made those rings specifically to ensnare those dwarves. Indeed, it's even conceivable in some sense that he tailored them so that, like, you know, the ring of, uh, of the House of Durin is, um, is, is in, you know, in some way calculated for the, uh, uh, for the, 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 the clan of Durin. Possibly, I mean, we don't we, we we don't even know. But I would be more willing to believe that they were individualized to that extent than that they were just kind of generic uh, and distributed. Uh, you know, not quite at random, but uh, sort of dis- dis- distributed around. In the very early drafts, the stuff that you can find in the early chapters of the Return of the Shadow, which we're studying on Wednesday nights uh, in my Mythgard Academy class. Um, you can see evidence that one of the initial conceptions was basically that they were just designed to be kind of pitfalls, that they were the rings, that there were rings of, you know, magic rings that were just kind of made and, and kind of sewn around, right, so that people would find them and get ensnared. Um, but I don't think that that's part of Sauron's plan as it later on came to be uh, came to be understood. The fact that the seven rings for the seven dwarves seems as calculated as it does suggests to me that the nine rings for mortal men were as well. That this is not just he made like nine, because nine's a nice number, right? So he made nine rings. No, I suspect that that means there were nine individual human kings that he was attempting to ensnare with those rings, just as there were apparently seven dwarf clan leaders, which would give him a stranglehold over the whole dwarf race, had they become wraiths under his power and, and, uh, and, you know, been able to sort of ensnare their entire clans, right? That seems to be the plan. Um, uh, except they didn't work, obviously, as we know. My suspicion, of course, is that the nine rings were similar, Right, and they were designed to have a similar effect. That he identified nine particular rulers, which he uh, attempted to ensnare and successfully, apparently, uh, with the nine rings. Um, so I do think that that that, that was. Uh, that, it seems to me most likely. Let me say that it seems to me most likely that it was calculated in that way. Um, and uh, was there anything that particularly distinguished them? Yes, I would say yes. And again. Evidence here is very slight, but what evidence we have suggests to me that there is a distinct... And the, 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 the particular thing that I'm thinking of here is uh, the, the place where Tolkien says that at the heart of each of the seven great dwarf hordes was a golden ring, right? That is to say, apparently, the dwarvish rings of power have, in some sense and in some way, the ability to help their masters accumulate wealth. 
And that, of course, seems to be perfectly calculated to ensnare a dwarf. You remember what the mortal rings were designed to do, right? And that was to give both power and long life, right? Power and immortality. So this will give you power, and it will give you the ability to escape from death. It is, that's the lure that he dangles in front of mortal men, right? In order to get them uh, to, uh, uh, to, to take the rings and thereby become enslaved. Gold seems to be the thing that he, uh, that he dangled in front of the dwarves, which makes sense, right? So that suggests to me that uh, they are different, and that if you gave a dwarf ring to a human, it probably, I mean, presumably the granting of long life and the, you know, the sort of that, 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 that stretching out in time, Gandalf says that's a characteristic of the great rings. If a mortal has the great rings, that'll happen. So what would happen if a human got a dwarf ring? Presumably that would happen, right? Which is why Gandalf seems to be open to the possibility that uh, it might be something other than the one, right? Even though it's a great ring, it might be something other than the one. Um, but um, uh, uh, so it could do that, but uh, it would um, presumably have other powers as well, like na- namely the, the whole the whole gold thing. Um, and of course, Bilbo did become rich. So there's that uh, as well. By the way, this gets me... Somebody, and I can't remember where it was, Twitter, I think, was talking about this. Um, Maybe by email, I can't even remember. But somebody was saying uh, uh, there still seems to be a contradiction in that Gandalf later on in the Council of Elrond recalls that Saruman said to him that each of the great rings had its proper gem, save the one which was round and unadorned. Um, and that this surely, if nothing else, should have been a giveaway that this that that was obviously the one ring that that uh, Bilbo had, and it could not possibly have been one of the seven or one of the nine, as we were talking about last time. Yes, but remember, to say that is cherry picking, right? That is to say, Gandalf is told two things, right? Both by Saruman, right? Both on exactly the same authority. One, each of the great rings had the great rings had each their proper gem, right? Um, not so the one. Saruman tells him that. The only reason he has to believe that that's accurate, because Gandalf has never seen the Nine Rings, right? Gandalf has never seen most of the Seven Rings, right? So the only reason that he has to believe that that's true is that Saruman told him. But Saruman also, on exactly the same authority, told him that the One was gone, and the One was at the bottom of the ocean, right? So in either one way or another, he has to question one of the things that Saruman told him, right? So, which is... Which is more like, I mean, he seems to be intellectually open-minded, right? That is intellectually open-minded to the, to the possibility. Maybe, maybe either Saruman was wrong about the bottom of the ocean thing or he was wrong about the gem thing. Which one is it? I don't know. What basis does Gandalf have to answer that question? But of course, as he admitted last time, that shadow fell on his heart, right? In his heart, he knew. He had a suspicion. He had a suspicion from the very beginning that this was a great ring and quite possibly the one ring. So again, so the answer, as we said last time, the answer to Frodo's question, how long have you known this, in a sense is, like, in my heart of hearts, I've known or at least suspected for 77 years. From the time that Bilbo got it, he had a sinking suspicion that this was the case. It was only a doubt, it was only a guess, right, uh, at first, uh, and there were things that told against it, right, so he kind of reasoned himself out of his suspicion for a while, um, but deep down he knew, or at least suspected, that it was the case. So, really, the question 
the question that a lot of people want to make, as we talked about last week, the, lot of, the question that a lot of people want to make is how could Gandalf be so dumb and not figure it out sooner? That's not the issue. The issue, as becomes much clearer when we look at the text carefully, is not why didn't Gandalf figure it out. The question is, why didn't he do something about it? Right? Why, or, and, and especially, why did he leave the ring with Bilbo and Frodo? How could he do that to them? And that is the question. How could you do this to me? Is the question that he's kind of implicitly answering in the passage from last time. Right? Of course I knew it was dangerous for you, he finally says in the end. Right, but he had to do something, um, and what he's been doing is leaving the ring where it is because he can't think of any place where it would be safer and more secret than it is in Bag End, right? Um, and so he takes the risk on his own. You know, he's taking his own chance, right? Uh, taking his own chance to say um, this is um, this is entirely possible that I'm getting Frodo into trouble. Right, um, but he's been watching Frodo carefully over the years to make sure that he's not getting more evil. And we can see even from uh, uh, from this first comment here uh, by Frodo's use of our that he's been right that the ring has not yet made an enormous impact on um, um, on Frodo. So that's okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, Colin uh, Burnett saying, were the seven original dwarf kings the linear descendants of the seven fathers of the dwarves? That's my understanding. And the only model we have for that is Durin. But since we know that Durin, uh, who was one of the seven original fathers of the dwarves, was the, the, you know, the head of the line of the kings in that house, um, that's my, my sort of assumption, is that the other dwarf houses all work the same way. Yeah, yeah. Um, Interesting, yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, uh, Milthaliel asks, is it reasonable to think that Gandalf's empathy and uh, sort of closeness with the people of Middle-earth can made him, made him more, more human, in a sense, um, that he might have been in denial about the ring and not wanting that part of Saruman's story to be true, or at least not, not, not wanting that part to be untrue, right? It's, it's the question of which part is wrong, right? Um, yeah, I mean... I think that Gandalf shows that. I mean, one thing that Gandalf shows is very sort of human feelings, right? He feels guilty. I think he does feel guilty about what he's done to Frodo. And, uh, and he, I, he does seem to be, there does seem to be a little bit of denial involved. He does not want to prove it to be true. Um, and because you'll remember the only thing that pushes him to, to, to real action, the, the thing that makes his, you know, his doubts slept, right? He was, he was lulled by the words of Saruman. He was reassured. But I do think the kind of the implication there is he wanted to, to hear that. He wanted to think that. Um, he wanted to be convinced that his fear was unfounded. His fear was unreasonable. And then in the end, he had to admit uh, that it was, but it wasn't until he was really confronted. It wasn't until Bilbo's... Um, Bilbo's words, right? When Bilbo starts going all my precious on the ring uh, after, you know, that the night of his party that Gandalf is like, oh, okay, time to leave denial and, and uh, you know, head inland now. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, good. Um, oh, interesting. Okay, so Jesse, yeah, um, I want to talk about Frodo's dreams, but I want to talk about Frodo's dreams 
in an orderly fa- I don't want to jump ahead to Frodo's dreams. Frodo's dreams are really cool, and then um, they are one of my favorite subplots of the Fellowship of the Ring, um, uh, because they're super easy just to like not even notice. Like you just kind of read over them. Um, I mean, like, I'm not even sure I ever even really paid attention to the fact that he was having those dreams about mountains in cha- early in Chapter 2, when we looked at that two weeks ago. Um, that wasn't quite new to me. I mean, like, I remember reading that passage before, but I'd never stopped to think about it before. Um, so I want to continue. I want to continue tracing that. But I'm going to want to be... Uh, be orderly about that. So we'll we'll get to that. We will totally talk about Frodo's dreams. I absolutely promise I'm not going to skim over Frodo's dreams at all. Can't wait to talk about them. But we might have to wait a few weeks or months before we get to most of the rest of them. But speaking of weeks and months, let's not wait weeks and months before we move on to uh, uh, today's passage. So, yeah, uh, Estelle Ali, I, I probably, more likely months, uh, before we get to the House of Tom Bombadil. I mean, man, that is like... What, chapter 7? I mean, whew, boy, chapter 7. That seems like uh, it's going to be autumn before we get there. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, let's um, uh, let's go back to... Uh, uh, let, let's go back to uh, 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 the, 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 the ring here. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, 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 Harley is saying, according to the, to the game developers, they have years worth of plans. Yeah, exactly. The only real question is, uh, are the Locho folks going to run out of uh, 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 material before I finish going through the Lord of the Rings or not? Probably not. Probably not. Um, but I think we'll both go happily along for many years here. Oh, the question was from Gussie Moose. Great. Yeah, 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 Gussie. I think we'll, we'll, um, we'll definitely we'll definitely get there, I promise. Okay, so here's the... Frodo has just been handed the ring, right? And remember the last point I was making last time was about Gandalf's confidence, right? He's sure what he's going to find. Very unlike that moment in the film, right, where we get... Where, you know, Ian McKellen does that, like, close my eyes in relief when Frodo initially says there's nothing on the ring. Like he... You know, in the film they depict it as if Gandalf is afraid that he's going to find fiery letters on the ring, but he's hoping that he won't, right? That is not Gandalf's situation in the book, right? In the book, Gandalf knows exactly what he's going to find. He knows this is the ring. He knows he doesn't need to worry about it being hot, right? So he picks it up immediately without testing it, without uh, uh, hesitating, and hands it to Frodo, who takes it on his shrinking palm. I love that image of the shrinking palm. And uh, and then looks at it and, and finds the fiery letters, I cannot read the fiery letters, said Frodo in a quavering voice. No, said Gandalf, but I can. The letters are elvish of an ancient mode, but the language is that of Mordor, which I will not utter here. But this in the common tongue is what is said close enough. Notice he's not even looking at it, right? He can tell Frodo what the letters look like, the alphabet they used, and what they say without looking, right? Because And this just sort of shows the state of his... Right. This is for Gandalf simply a confirmation. Right. He knew it. He knew exactly what he would find on the ring. And uh, and of course, he does, in fact, uh, uh, he does, in fact, uh, find it. This in the common tongue is what is said close enough. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them. It is only two lines of a verse long known in elven lore. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie, 
One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. He paused, and then said slowly in a deep voice, This is the master ring, the one ring to rule them all. This is the one ring that he lost many ages ago to the great weakening of his power. He greatly desires it, but he must not get it. Okay. Um, the poem. Let's talk about the poem. First, did you hear the rhythm? Most importantly, this is the thing, by the way, I taught a class on Tolkien's poetry uh, at Signum uh, two years ago, uh, teaching it again this coming year, I think. Uh, but anyway, um, it's, um, it's, uh, uh, I, t- I taught, taught a whole class on Tolkien's short poems throughout his career, which is really fun. Uh, and we did all the poems in The Lord of the Rings, uh, in addition to a bunch of other poems, a lot, many, you know, thousands and dozens of poems that he wrote. Um, and we did a lot with his use of meter. Tolkien loves to play with the sound of lines, uh, both the sounds of words, such as alliteration and assonance and rhyme and internal rhyme and multisyllabic rhyme and all that stuff, but also, of course, with the sound of lines. Um, and, um, and yes, exactly. Isn't it cool? how the rhythm changes at the end, and you can see why. Um, the, the, there, there are two different authors to this poem, right? First of all, what is this poem? Who's the author of this poem? We are told, and this is a kind of thing people always forget to... to, to okay, no, people don't always forget it, but many people often forget to look at the context, <clears throat> right? This is a verse long known in elven lore, right? Okay, so, so, so this is an elven lore verse. And if you look through the big picture of the Lord of the Rings, you will see that there are lots of... There's the lore verses, are, that's a genre of poetry. Um, and it's interesting that actually I discovered, and I had never done this before, <clears throat> in my Tolkien's poetry class, I discovered that most lore poems... Most of the most most of the verses of lore in the Lord of the Rings are in a trochaic meter, which is kind of interesting, right? Um, and most of this poem is in a trochaic meter as well. Um, at least it has a fun. It's 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 a fairly irregular meter. Most of it is not very regular um, uh, in its meter, but it has a primarily trochaic. Uh, 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 beat pattern. Um, and in case you don't know the poetic vocabulary, what that means is a stressed followed by an unstressed s- syllable in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. Um, so it, it, the, the rhythm is bum bum, bum bum, bum bum, bum bum, rather than bum bum, bum bum, bum bum, bum bum. Um, so the, the, the verses are trochaic in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. And that's very common. Most of the verses of lore are trochaic, in fact, in The Lord of the Rings, as I'll show you as we go through. But there are, of course, two lines of this poem which are emphatically different in a a very basic, uh, with a very basic rhythmic change, right? They shift to iams, the bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum pattern, instead of the bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum pattern. And that's, of course, the one ring to rule them all. Line. So if you just take the verse, the, the, the poem, out of context, as it is, for instance, published as an epigraph at the beginning of the book, right? Um, you might hear it, but you won't have an explanation for it. Why is it that the, that the sound of the lines changes there? Nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the Dark Lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, 
one ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. Hear that? Hear how drastic the rhythm is in those two lines compared to the lines around it? Right? But of course, when Gandalf says his piece here in this scene, we can understand exactly why. Right? Because this poem has two authors. Most of the poem was written by some elvish sage we don't know who. Right? Whoever it is, whatever elf is in the business of writing verses of lore for other lore masters to remember, apparently wrote this. Right? Um, But not those two lines. Those two lines are what is inscribed inside the ring. We know the author of those lines. Sauron is the author of those lines. And that's why the verse changes meter and switches to a creepy iambic meter, right? And much more regular than the rest of it because it's an incantation and it sounds like an incantation, doesn't it? It was a, it was a spell, uh, a magic spell that Sauron was using in the making, right, uh, of the One Ring, which we will learn later was overheard by Celebrimbor. We know these were Sauron's very words. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. Um, this verse, therefore, contains that those two lines, right? It contains Sauron's incantation. It, 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 it commemorates it, right? It's important for lore masters to remember, probably for reasons that we wouldn't even suspect, but it's, it's, it's important for Elvish lore masters to recall the exact incantation that was overheard that Sauron used. And so that incantation is embedded into this poem of lore, right? Which is cool. Like, that is so awesome. Um, and, um, and, and this is why Tony Mead was asking me on uh, Twitter last week um, about the, like, um, how essential is the land of Mordor? Like, the repetition of the land of Mordor, right? In the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. Um, he was asking if it was a appropriate to sort of read that as um, having a, a sort of a deno, like a, a, a specific denotation, like a um, one ring to rule them all. So the ring is designed to rule them, find them, and bring them, and bind them in the land of Mordor, right? So he's like, how essential is the land of Mordor? Did, is the poem suggesting that the ring was designed that the ring is intrinsically connected to the land of Mordor in some sense, right? That what it's designed to do is not just rule them, find them, bring them and bind them any old place, right? But to rule them, find them, bring them and bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie, right? Um, And my answer to that is no. And I I say no because it's not one, it's clearly not one poem, right? Um, So we can't say in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie is part of the intention of the author of the, the ruling, finding, bringing, and binding, right? Because those are Sauron's words. The in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie are the words of the elvish lore master. Again, at least this is, this is my interpretation of the poem. So therefore, no, I would not say that there's an intrinsic connection like that. Rather, that repeated line, in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie, serves as a frame, right? A frame for that incantation. Uh... This is a slightly frivolous, not exactly frivolous, but uh, a slightly strange way of saying it. Um, those two lines seem to be almost like a kind of a quarantine, <laughs> right, of that of that incantation, right? Um, it's like it provides the context, the same context, both before and afterwards, in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie, right? Um, and we're, we're getting the Mordor content, 
right? Uh, the content that's straight out of Mordor, sandwiched uh, between those between those two lines. I don't mean that it's literally a quarantine, like that there's some kind of elvish incantation in those lines which cancels out. I'm not I'm not getting that that sort of ornate about it. Um, but it is. It does seem to be a very deliberate kind of framing advice, right? Um, so, uh, um, uh, so yes. And, uh, and of course, uh, uh, Estelle Ali is reminding me, of course, of, of what this is in the black speech. Gandalf is going to say it in the black speech, but if you notice the black speech, um, uh, Gandalf says, uh, but this in the common tongue is what is said close enough. Right. And I love it, by the way, a, it's like a dead giveaway when people, <laughs> when people in the Lord of the Rings, say that the poem that they're about to deliver is like a very crude approximation of the original in the original language, right? Never believe them, right? Never, never believe them. It's always a very close in, uh, 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 capturing of that thing. And you'll notice when you do hear Gandalf's version of it, um, Ash Nazg Durbataluk, Ash Naz Gimbatul, Ash Naz Thrakataluk, Achburzum Ishi Krimpatul, the rhythm is the same, right? Almost exactly the same in English and in the black speech. Um, so, yes, yeah, it's it's pretty darn close, Gandalf. People are very modest uh, about their... Remember, again, or, uh, Aragorn says almost the same thing when he uh, delivers the really very metrically sophisticated um, uh, 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 poem about Baron and Luthien at Weathertop. Uh, and, um, uh, and it's... Uh, um, the, uh, the, the, there's, there's, there's several occasions, as I say, like that. And it's generally humility and usually, uh, usually a, a, uh, a, a, a fairly false humility. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so, uh, is find literal or symbolic? Um, literal, I would say literal, um, just as the ruling and the binding are presumably literal as well. I mean, binding doesn't mean literally with physical, uh, 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 you know, um, a, a f- physical binding, but um, but a, a, a very real, you know, spiritual or mental binding. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, I think he really wants to find them where they are. Remember, the elvish rings are immediately the 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 the, the people who wear them take them off as soon as uh, Sauron puts on the one ring and they and Celebrimbor is aware of him and aware of his incantation, right? Um, they immediately take off the elvish rings because he can literally find them, right? He'll know where they are and their minds will be revealed to him. So the only way they can prevent that is by not using, not wearing their elvish rings. Now, of course, Galadriel is wearing Nenya um, when we meet her because Sauron doesn't have the one ring, right? But if Sauron got it back, she'd take it off again right away. That would probably be too late. Okay, so um, that was where I meant to end class last time, but I got through all but one slide, which is not too bad. I won't complain. Um, let's let's move on. Okay, and this is the dreadful chance, Frodo. He believed that the one had perished, that the elves had destroyed it, as should have been done. But he knows now that it has not perished, that it has been found. So he is seeking it, seeking it, and all his thought is bent on it. It is his great hope and our great fear. Why? Why wasn't it destroyed? cried Frodo. 
And how did the enemy ever come to lose it if he was so strong, and it was so precious to him? He clutched the ring in his hand, as if he saw already dark fingers stretching out to seize it. Okay, so this is one of those passages that I would argue we readers, you know, as we're reading, that we too often uh, take it for granted, right? That we, 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 we too often kind of... How did the enemy ever come to lose it if he was so strong and it was so precious to him, right? The fact that Sauron doesn't have the ring of power anymore is something we... It's like a framework, right, that we can sort of take for granted. But Frodo's question is an excellent one. Think about the implications of Frodo's question, Right? Remember what we were told at the beginning of the chapter about how rumors and whispers are going abroad now, right? How people are again talking about the land of Mordor, right? That name has been heard in the Shire and, uh, uh, and the Dark Lord and the Dark Tower. There are all these, like, vague but scary and, though fortunately distant, things that the hobbits are hearing about, right? But the, the legendary concept of the Dark Lord who threatened the entire world from his dark tower in the land of Mordor. Um, this is, um, this is, well, he's a big deal, right? And so it's, it's a very important question. Um, he starts with why wasn't it destroyed, right? Because Gandalf has just said um, he believed that, it had, that the elves had destroyed it as they should have done. And so his first question is, well, why didn't they destroy it? And then he's like, no, wait, back up a second. How the heck did he lose it? How did the elves get it? Right? Um, and like, it's really, really unlikely that Sauron would ever have lost the ring. Right? How could he possibly have lost it? Mislaid it? What? I mean, like, how? How is it conceivable? Um, and uh, the answer is kind of shocking. Again, if we don't already know the answer and take it for granted, the answer is a little bit shocking, right? Um, now, uh, yes, it is interesting, of course, as... Uh, uh, oh, Aragorn has joined us. That's very kind. Um, that uh, is it significant that he... Significant that Frodo uses the word precious. Well, it is... Yes, of course it's significant. Uh, you can't talk about somebody's desire for the ring and throw out the word precious and not pay attention to that, right? I mean, that's not a... That is, that is not an arbitrary word choice at this point. Uh, there's way too much of a, of a weight given to that word. Um, uh, is Frodo conscious of it? Is Frodo drawing a deliberate parallel between Sauron and Gollum? No, I don't think... I don't think he's... That would be kind of, uh, you know... Um, uh, uh, I don't know, jocular of him, really. Um, he's clear. That's clearly not the way he's thinking about. Um, he's thinking about Sauron here. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm not sure that I know. I'm not sure that I know what to make exactly of his use of the word precious. Um, I mean, is it revealing about him and about his frame of mind that like he thinks of the ring as precious, and so he's kind of that kind of slips out as like a Freudian slip on Frodo's part. Possibly, possibly. Um, I tend to not think about that. Think of—I mean, I tend not think thinking that in those terms. Again, Frodo hasn't shown that kind of a uh, of an attachment to the ring yet. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, oh, not a cat is a great question. Why did Sauron not realize that the ring must have survived or else he himself would have been destroyed? Great question. Um, well, he wouldn't be destroyed. Sauron isn't destroyed at the end. Um, he falls. And as Gandalf says, his fall is so complete that his rising again cannot be anticipated, right? Um, but that's not the same thing as saying that he dies. He doesn't die. Um, first of all, he can't die. In what sense is he meant to die, right? He's, um, he's immortal. He's an immortal spirit, Sauron is. Um, he can be weakened. But remember, he was weakened, right? Yeah, no, exactly, Ali, the, the, the ring is not a horcrux. Exactly. Definitely not a horcrux. Um, and it is easy, I think, for people to slip into thinking of the ring like a horcrux. But it's not. Um, absolutely. He, um, uh, remember what happened to Sauron. Um, well, we're going to get to that uh, in a minute. But Sauron was weakened. Terribly weakened. Um, and only slowly regained his strength again. Um, I'm not sure. You might say, well, hang on a second. That's not the first time that's happened to Sauron, right? Sauron has had, uh, Sauron's had a few low moments in his career, right? You'd think the guy would be used to it, right? I mean, first he gets his butt kicked by Huon and Luthien back in the first stage, which is a little embarrassing. And then he uh, has the whole Numenor incident, the whole, right, like, I fell into the abyss with the, you know, the, you know, the, um, the island of Numenor fell into the abyss and, and all I got was this T-shirt. I mean, Sauron's been there, right? He's done that. Um, so you, and, and we know that this affected his, you know, he's now no longer able to take a, to take a you know, a, a, an attractive form anymore, right? So, you know, we, we, we know that all this stuff is, 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 is there, is relevant, right? He's, he's had those experiences. What happens to him after the battle? right after the Battle of the Last Alliance, is fundamentally different. Because remember, he does not have the ring. When he fell into the Gulf of Numenor, Tolkien decided he did not have the ring at that point. Um, when he got uh, 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 schooled back in the First Age, he hadn't created the ring, right? So when he creates the ring, he pours a huge portion of himself into the ring. Um, when he went to Numenor and fell into the Abyss... He never lost that connection to the ring. He had the ring. He set the ring aside. He left it in Mordor, which kind of blows my mind, to be perfectly frank. But he did, apparently. Tolkien had decided that that's what he did. So he still had his connection to the ring. Other things happened. It was unpleasant in other ways. But, um, but he, he, he didn't lose that connection to the ring. When the ring is taken from him, right? when his finger's cut off and his, and his ring is taken from him, he is weakened the connection between him and his ring is broken. Not com- it's not destroyed, but it's broken. And he's never experienced that before. So here, you know, he like wakes up and finds himself a greatly reduced spirit, right? Who takes a long time to build up strength again. Um, Gandalf suggests... Now, it's of course, it's possible Gandalf is wrong about this, that Sauron never did believe that the one had perished um, and just didn't know where to start looking. But... Um, but I don't see any necessary reason to doubt Gandalf here. Sauron might have believed that. Believed that he was pulling himself back up by his bootstraps and that he was, you know, like, 
you know, things were not going to, he wasn't going to be able to rebuild things like he did in the old days uh, because of, um, you know, losing the power of the ring if he thinks the ring is lost for good, um, as he apparently seems to do. But um, apparently that's, um, he, you know, he, so he turns out to be wrong because, again, he doesn't know. He's never had the ring taken. He's never had the ring destroyed before, but he's never had it taken from him either, right? Uh, now he knows and presumably in the future will know the difference. And so when he falls, his fall at the end of the Lord of the Rings is going to be much, much greater and in a sense more permanent because the, 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 the big portion of his own native power that he put into the ring is not just separated from him as it was when he lost the ring the first time, but destroyed permanently. Right, and so that he can never regain it uh, in in any sense. Um, anyway, okay, so um, uh, so that's that's uh, um, that's I mean I, that's how I that's that's how I answer that's that's my understanding of what Gandalf means and or sort of how what Gandalf says uh, could be true. But again, the the main thing to draw from this is to try to put yourself into Frodo's perspective. Right, the Dark Lord of Mordor is pretty much the scariest thing you've ever heard of. Right, I mean he is like the 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 power of ultimate evil. He's not really the power of ultimate evil, right? But that's how they think of him, right? That's how that's how Frodo and the Hobbits will certainly think of him, right? And so the idea, why is it even on the table for the elves to have destroyed it, right? I am curious as to why they didn't, but how could they even get? How, how could they even get there? He doesn't know. So, Gandalf explains. It was taken from him, said Gandalf. The strength of the elves to resist him was greater long ago, and not all men were estranged from them. The men of Westerness came to their aid. That is a chapter of ancient history which it might be good to recall. For there was sorrow then too, and gathering dark, but great valor, and great deeds that were not wholly vain. One day, perhaps, I will tell you all the tale, or you shall hear it told in full by one who knows it best. But for the moment, since most of all you need to know how this thing came to you, and that will be tale enough, this is all, I, all that I will say. It was Gilgalad, elven king and Elendil of Westerness, who overthrew Sauron, though they themselves perished in the deed, and Isildur, Elendil's son, cut the ring from Sauron's hand and took it for his own. Then Sauron was vanquished, and his spirit fled, and was hidden for long years, until his shadow took shape again in Mirkwood. Again, notice the took shape again suggests that his spirit was shapeless, or at least less shapely <laughs> than it later on became, right? Again, there was a lot of rebuilding that he needed to do. So again, Sauron could be forgiven, never having had the experience before, for thinking that perhaps this is what what having his ring destroyed was going to look like. Putting all of his power into the ring was a calculated gamble. He needed to do it if he was going to gain the kind of power that he wanted to gain over people like Celebrimbor and Goadriel and Elrond and Gilgalad. But he, um, uh, uh, but of course he knew he was taking a risk. And he knew this because he had seen Melkor taking that same risk back in the First Age. Um, and in the end, losing, basically. Um, uh, anyway, so, okay, so he, uh, but he's never had that experience. He was a shapeless shadow until he finally took shape again in Mirkwood. This is kind of stunning. This is the first time that we, as readers of this story, have learned about the Last Alliance, right? And the, the idea that Sauron could lose. And this is a really 
this is a surprising achievement, right? Surprising that the elves and men could achieve this. It's interesting to me. And Gandalf, Gandalf says two very, very understated things here, right? The first understated thing that he says is, that is a chapter of ancient history which it might be good to recall. Yeah, 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 that does seem like a relevant and handy piece of lore, right? The fact that the Dark Lord of Mordor, although he's terrifying and although it seems awful, he's not undefeatable. Right, he was defeated, in fact, by um, uh, uh, by the elves and men in the past. He wasn't just tricked, right? They didn't just work around him. They came right at him. They took him on and they beat him by main strength, right? They wrestled him to the ground and cut the ring off his hand. How did he lose the ring? Frodo asks. He didn't. It was taken from him. He was overpowered while he had his ring. I mean, that's mind blowing. Right? Mind-blowing that that was able to happen. What Gilgalad and Elendil and company accomplished is amazing, right? And of course, it, it accomplishes two things, right? On the one hand, hearing about this gives us a certain amount of hope, right? Uh, it tells Frodo, and of course it tells us, don't think of Sauron as, like, infinitely powerful. Because he's not infinitely powerful. He can meet his match. Indeed, he has met his match before, right? Um... And also, the other thing that it accomplishes, of course, is to impress upon Frodo and upon us, dang, Gilgalad and Elendil were amazing, right? Exactly, Cecilia. It shows how much power elves and men have when they work together, and especially how much power they had back in the day, right? Uh, Because, of course, there is no elven king and there is no king of Westerness today who could do quite the same that they did, right? Um... So, you know, the mighty heroes of old aren't coming back. You know, Gilgalad and Elendil aren't walking through that door. But, uh, but it happened, right? And it's important for us to recall that it happened. Um, the other, by the way, the other piece of, um, uh, the other piece of, of, of understatement, which is an even more radical piece of understatement, right, is when he says, uh, uh, so uh, there was sorrow then too and gathering dark, right? So it was parallel, Right, Sauron was on the move and his shadow was growing just like now, right? Um, but there was also great valor and great deeds that were not wholly vain. <laughs> Talk about damning with faint praise, right? The, their great deeds were not entirely vain, right? The, there were things accomplished that weren't completely pointless. <laughs> great, Gandalf. Wow, that's exciting, right? Um, I love the extreme sort of toned down praise uh, that Gandalf gives there. It's um, uh, it's kind of it's kind of amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, oh yeah. So uh, Rosie Sauron can put on a form. He just can't put on a fair form anymore. He loses the power to deceive. To be like he 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 can no longer attempt. He can only rule now. Um, and you can tell, Rosie, uh, that he's bound to his form. He does still have a form. He does still have a, a body um, that, he is, that he's bound to. And you can tell that he's bound to it by what Gollum says uh, uh, in The Two Towers. Gollum says, yes, he has only nine fingers on the black hand, right? Um, or, you know, only four on the black, on single black hand, right? Uh, but it's in the, but they're enough, right? Um Presumably, uh, he would, uh, if he were just able to take his own form, he'd probably take a form with five whole fingers, right? And not take a maimed form. Um, 
but uh, uh, anyway, yeah. So uh, uh, that suggests to me not only that he does have a body, but it shows how he's bound to the body that he had, right? Um, but uh, exactly, he can't be pretty anymore, Jesse. That's that's exactly it. Um, so okay, all right. So so this is this is encouraging, right? This is encouraging to see that um, uh, Sauron is opposable, right? So that's good news. But the ring was lost. It fell into the great river, Anduin, and vanished. For Isildur was marching north along the east banks of the river, and near the gladden fields he was waylaid by the orcs of the mountains, and almost all his folk were slain. He leaped into the waters, but the ring slipped from his finger as he swam, and then the orcs saw him and killed him with arrows. Gandalf paused. And there in the dark pools amid the gladden fields, he said, the ring passed out of knowledge and legend and even so much of its history is known now only to a few, and the Council of the Wise could discover no more. But at last, I can carry on the story, I think. Okay, so he, uh, he's pretty sure. He's pretty sure that he knows what happened, right? Um, couple things that I would want to... I'm, I'm trying to hurry so we can get through some of Gollum's story before we do our field trip today. Um, but, um, uh, but a couple things that I wanted to point out here. What do we learn about the ring? Notice here, right? Um, because I, this is something that I want to pay careful attention to. One of the things, one of the other major threads that I want to be uh, tracing as we go through this book is what do we learn about the ring? What is the nature? What are the powers of the ring? Um, a lot of people have kind of different ideas about this, and I want to make sure we look as we're going through really carefully. I want to make sure we notice every piece of evidence that we can get about this, right? So what do we learn about the ring, its nature, and its power uh, from the story of Isildur, even the very brief story of Isildur that, um, uh, that uh, uh, Gandalf tells here? He, Isildur, leaped into the waters, but the ring slipped from his finger as he swam, and then the orcs saw him and killed him with arrows. Um, exactly. Uh, uh, Rowan of Gondor asks, is the ring sentient? One of the big questions, right? That is one of the big questions. How sentient is the ring? Can, is the ring sentient? Can it communicate? Does it have desires? Does it, can it make plans? Uh, does it make long-term plans? Uh, is it, you know, what is it like? Exactly, exactly. Well, we'll see. And I, but I want to be careful, right? We're not given very direct evidence about this. All that Gandalf says is that the ring slipped from his finger as he swam. Right. Um, I think the implication is that the ring betrayed him, right? The ring revealed him to the orcs. But here's what we don't know. What we don't know is why. Um, and I want to be cautious about that again it's it's this is something we're gonna we're, we're gonna you know we're, we'll come back to this passage uh you know when we have other pieces of evidence to combine it to um but i want to make sure that we're not too quick to jump to conclusions to, to 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 conclude more than the evidence we get in this passage will really bear um but um here are the facts of the case right isildur and his men are ambushed by the orcs Isildur is swimming in the river and the, when, the, when the ring slips from his finger and he is seen and killed as a result. 
that kind of sounds like a murder attempt on the part of the ring, doesn't it? It sounds like he was betrayed by the ring, betrayed to his death. And indeed, that is obviously the understanding of this that has filtered through to the South Kingdom, which is why the ring is going to be known as Isildur's Bane, right? That is, it's called the thing that killed him. And that seems to be a fair... uh, So even when the actual lore of, you know, what exactly Isildur's Bane is and what that means seems to have been lost in Gondor by the time we get to there at the end of the thir- uh, at the end of the third age but still the concept that it was the cause of his death lies behind that phrase Isildur's bane right so um it seems you know uh, could we convict uh, the ring for 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 murder well, I guess really all you could peg the ring with was conspiracy to commit murder here right as it didn't actually uh, bring about the cause of death, um, but um, uh, but still good. Uh, Amy's revenge points out we we also learn that the ring works the same invisibility power on one of the mighty men of Westerness as on a small hobbit, which isn't a given. Agreed. It made Isildur invisible. Obviously, good, good. I agree. Let's not take that for granted. So we learn that its power of invisibility works equally, at least on all mortals. Right. So that's that is that that is interesting. Um, it slipped off its finger. Did the ring do that on purpose? That seems probable. Did the ring do it on purpose in order to bring about Isildur's death? That seems probable. Why? Did the ring have a plan? Was the ring attempting to do something other than just being mean to Isildur, right? Um, is it just malicious in general? Is it just trying to bring about the destruction of the one who wields it? That's possible, right? Did it not like Isildur, and therefore tried to off him? That also seems possible. Was it trying to get back to the orcs? Maybe, but, um, uh, yes, uh, 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 Milthalia was pointing out that it did the same thing to Bilbo when he was escaping from, from Gollum. Yes, that the ring slipped off his finger, and he found himself revealed to the goblins at the, at the, the back door, yes, absolutely. Um, and Tolkien added in that late, in the later edition, when synthesizing the Hobbit with this conception of the Ring that he's developed in writing the Fellowship of the Ring, he added that. If you remember that that that, that like two sentences in the Hobbit about like a, you know the Ring playing one last trick before taking a new master, right? Um, uh, the idea that the Ring did it on purpose and the Ring was was playing some kind of trick upon him. Right, um, that was added later on when Tolkien was synthesizing the Hobbit with the Lord of the Rings. So yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, th- that parallel there seems to be deliberate. Um, yes. Now, but here's here's the the counter argument that I would well, not exactly counter argument. Here's the thing I would put on the other side: if the Ring has a plan and is trying to get back to the orcs. It does a terrible job, right? I would say the evidence here suggests that either the ring A does not plan or B plans very poorly, right? Because slipping off Isildur's finger in the river turns out to be a really bad move and in fact ends up concealing the ring from everybody, right? Had Isildur not jumped into the river... Which, by the way, brings me to this subordinate question. We're focused here on the ring, and what do, what do we learn about the ring? But the question, why did Isildur jump into the river? Right? 
Um, what exactly was Isildur's motivation for that? And don't talk to me about Unfinished Tales, because Unfinished Tales is written after The Lord of the Rings, right? Tolkien came up with a story for what Isildur was up to and what was in Isildur's mind, but that was written later, right? Um, he wrote that back into it. That's not necessarily... The Isildur that we get in Unfinished Tales is not necessarily the same Isildur story that we get uh, in The Lord of the Rings. Anyway, uh, so... The ring's actions, if the ring was trying to escape from Isildur, which it did, if it was trying to bring about Isildur's death, which it did, the result of those things was to lose itself for thousands of years, right? It was, what, 2,500 years or something? It lay at the bottom of the river? Um, so, yeah, it, um, if it's, I don't think that was the plan, right? At least that seems like a bad plan. Um, I mean, heck, Saruman's story was like this close to being true, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Karita says, if the ring is sentient, it was also pretty bored for a very long time. Exactly, exactly, Karita. And let that be a lesson to it, I say. Right. That's what you get for uh, betraying your master to death in the water. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, see, Cecilia brings up another really important point. Um, well, I should say another really important question, which is a very, very good question to be asking, which is what exactly is the connection between Sauron and the ring? Um, to what extent are the actions of the ring being done according to the will of Sauron? Um, if part of Sauron's spirit and will is in the ring, how independent is that portion of Sauron's will and spirit, right? Um, or is it still in some way under Sauron's remote control, right? I think the clear evidence in, of this story is that it's not directly under Sauron's control. He's clearly not able to operate the ring from afar. If so, he would certainly know that it had not been destroyed, right? So if Gandalf is correct that Sauron initially believes the ring is gone, which, again, I think is plausible, if he initially believes that the ring was gone, then it, um, uh, there's no way possible. That, so then the ring would be inert, right? If, if Sauron believes it's destroyed and it acts by his will, then it would be inert when he didn't even know that it was around, Right, clearly. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, Harley, I agree that uh, the 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 fish were probably not great company uh, for the ring. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, Harley, this does suggest the opportunity for like fan fiction about like the fish who gets the ring and then like establishes his own king kingdom of dominion among the other catfish at the bottom of the river. Right? Uh, there are all kinds of uh, uh, of 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 stories and uh, local river myths that could be growing around what the ring was doing for twenty five hundred years at the bottom of the river. Um, but um, anyway, okay, so. Uh, so I don't think we get much that's conclusive here. I, I do conclusively believe the ring is not under Sauron's conscious control. Um, but I do think that he um, is... Uh, I, I do think it's... And I do think it's pretty clear that the ring was trying to betray him. But again, I think that one thing that we get from this is either the ring is not a, is not a planner at all or not a good planner. Um, 
and and that by the way i think we're going to continue seeing all the way to the very end right um because just as the ring brought about its own concealment from sauron if it was attempting to reveal itself it failed and ended up ironically bringing about its own concealment for millennia right uh so too the ring, by acting upon the bearers in the way that it does, is going eventually to bring about its own destruction, as we will see at the end. So this is a thing that's going to be fairly consistent, I think, throughout. Okay, let's keep going. Gandalf is going to carry on the story now. Um, so he says, now I think I can carry on, I think I can carry on the story. Notice, by the way, Notice how short Isildur's story is, right? He tells the story of Isildur and the loss of the ring in uh, two sentences, right? Two sentences. And then he says he can continue the story. Now, I don't know know about you, but I expect Gandalf to continue the story in the same mode, right? Um, You know, the same kind of general mode, like the same kind of synopsis. But no, he completely shifts narrative gears here, and he starts telling a story. Long after, but still very long ago, there lived by the banks of the great river on the, on the edge of Wilderland a clever-handed and quiet-footed little people. This sentence, I maintain, is very... This is like, and now for something completely different. Gandalf has not spoken in this mode. Right? All of a sudden, we're now... It's now story time. Right, that itself is interesting to me, and brings up a question: Gandalf, why is it story time now? Why are we now dilating on this? Right, giving this full and strikingly detailed story of the clever-handed and quiet-footed little people that live on the banks of the great river on the edge of Wilderland. Right, you told the story of the battle of the last alliance and the and the and the vanquishment. You said it was probably good to remember that. And then you told the story in about four sentences. And then you told the story of Isildur losing the ring in two sentences. But now we're going to be like, there lived by the banks of the great river, right? Once upon a time. Now we're, now we're in once upon a time mode, right? We're going to tell the full epic story. Um, that, to me, is really interesting, right? Now let's keep going. I guess they were of hobbit kind, akin to the fathers of the fathers of the stores, for they, lo- for they loved the river and often swam in it, or made little boats of reeds. So Gaffer Gamgee would call them queer, but they're, you know, no queerer than Bucklanders, probably. There was among them a family of high repute, for it was large and wealthier than most, and it was ruled by a grandmother of the folk, stern and wise in old lore, such as they had. The most inquisitive and curious-minded of that family was called Smeagol. He was interested in roots and beginnings. He dived into deep pools. He burrowed under trees and growing plants. He tunneled into green mounds, and he ceased to look up at the hilltops, or the leaves on trees, or the flowers opening in the air. His head and his eyes were downward. Now we get a whole character sketch, right? First we get the setting, right? And the whole kind of cultural context, kind of like the beginning of chapter one, right? And now we get this whole character sketch, which is really interesting. Um, uh, uh, oh, Lincoln, uh, Tolkien hadn't established who the stores were at this point. No, it's in the it's in the it's in the the, the, the prologue to the Fellowship of the Ring, but it's but it's only it's only in the prologue. And Lincoln, my guess is that uh, 
this reference to the stores is probably why he included that in the. Uh, uh, I don't think Harfoots or Fallowhides get any mention in the in the narrative of the Lord of the Rings, but the stores do here, right? So I I, I I'm I think that's why he included that bit uh, in the uh, in, in the prologue. But um, okay. Let's look at the character sketch, because I think this is important. Clearly, Gandalf thinks it's important enough to go into this much detail, right? What's he like, Smeagol? Inquisitive and curious-minded, we're told. Now, that seems fine, right? Nothing wrong about that. But watch what Gandalf says. What does he do? What does his inquisitiveness lead him to? He's interested in roots and beginnings, Oh, so he's like a, a little proto-Hobbit lore master, right? That's cool. I wish we could have Hobbit lore masters in Lotro. So that, that's that's like, here we go, like, there's Smeagol, living the dream, right? I don't know if he had a, uh, you know, a, 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 a Hobbit-scale animal pet or what, but he's a lore master, right? He's interested in roots and beginnings. But, but look, what does he do? What form does it take? How does Gandalf characterize his interest in roots and beginnings? He dived into deep pools. He burrowed under trees and growing plants. He tunneled into green mounds. And he ceased to look up at the hilltops, or the leaves on trees, or the flowers opening in the air. His head and eyes were downward. So we're told three things that he does, and three things that he doesn't do. Right? The three things that he does, dive into deep pools, burrow under trees and growing plants, and tunnel into green mounds. Now, of those three things, I would argue that there is a, a, a definite trajectory there, right? We're moving in the direction of increasing sketchiness, right? Uh, diving into deep pools. Okay. A little dangerous, maybe. Right? I mean, if you dive into really deep pools, you can drown, right? That, that's, there's a non-zero chance of drowning. But, you know, not necessarily wrong, morally, right? Um, yes, Karita, exactly. Uh, Karita says, wouldn't, wouldn't burrowing under the roots of plants kill them? Yeah, yeah, they kind of would. Burrowing under trees and growing plants? Yes, to find out what was in their roots... Yeah, yeah. Uh, he who uproots a plant to find what its roots are like maybe has left the path of wisdom, right? So, th- diving into deep pools, like, is he, uh, is he, is he breaking any taboos here, right? Is he crossing any lines? No, it's a little dangerous, right? But, but you know, it's it's okay. Um, burrowing under the roots of growing plants, right? Because you're interested in roots, eh, starts to. Um, Starts to get a, a little sketchier, but then did you notice the third one? Tunneled into green mounds? Oh, that's bad. That's legitimately bad. Or at least legitimately dangerous, right? I mean, um, um, uh, um, oh, hey, hey. I see, 
Shout out to Andy Higgins joining us for his first uh, live class. See, Andy, Europe-friendly time, right? Um, yes, Karita, exactly. What do you find in green mounds? If you find a green mound, you're looking at a gra- That's a barrow, right? That's a grave. Or what else? So there's one of two things you might expect to find in a green mound. If you find a green mound and you burrow into it, what are, there's, there's, there's two things that you might be looking for. One is dead folks. Right? You might find corpses or at least skeletons and possibly treasure, right? What's the other thing? What's the other thing? Treasure and dead folk, those two go together. Right? Anybody else know what else? What else might you find? Um, what living thing lives in green mounds? Who? Not yet. Sorry. Trying to get back up to my last slide there. Hey, I want to go to my last slide. <laughs> I am incapable of accessing my previous slide. Okay, thank you. All right. What else do you, what else do you find living there? Anybody? No? Dragons, if you're extremely unlucky, if you choose the 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 wrong barrow, right? I mean, if you uh, if you uh, if you roll if you if you make a disastrous roll on your what lives in this barrow roll, right? If your DM rolls terribly, then you find a dragon, right? Uh, uh, let's see, elf worms, no elves, elves, elves are what you would find living in a in a green mound. Everybody knows that, right? An elf mound. Um, I, I, I mean, after all, like the King of Mirkwood basically lives in an elf mound. Um, uh, yeah, no, that's a thing. That's a, that's a traditional thing. Um, you might find the doorway to the kingdom of fairy in a green mound, right? So yeah, right. So uh, one of two things. So I, I don't know what it was he was looking for, right? My guess is that Smeagol was going for dead people and treasure, Right. But hey, it could be the gateway to to to. Fa- oh, you said I'm sorry. You said fairies. I missed it. I missed. Yes, yeah, you did. Very good. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, uh, I don't even know how to how to pronounce your name though. Is it so S C O E D T? Is it one syllable? Because if it's one syllable, that would be really fun. Is it like Scoit? Because if so, can I call you Scoit? If that's not how it's pronounced, yeah. Is that right? Ah, excellent. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, Scoid got it right. Fairies are what you find, right? So absolutely. So it could be. It could be. It could be a a a, 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 a the 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 pathway to fairy, right? Which you know could be profitable in any number of ways, or at least interesting, right? If you're a very curious person. So, um, whoa, sorry. Um, so uh, uh, his his curiosity is leading him to, and again, but. So I, I called it in, increasingly sketchy. I would say at least increasingly transgressive, right? Increasingly intrusive. First, you're just intruding upon the catfish at the bottom of the deep pools, right? And whatever else might be lying down there. Second, you're intruding upon, like, the living space of the growing plants, right? Um, whom you're probably killing by burrowing beneath them. Now you're transgressing on the dead people whose graves you're robbing or the elves whose kingdom you're entering, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, anyhow, uh, that, that's, 
an interesting character sketch, Gollum or Gandalf. Now let me look at our, our next thing. Um, this is a, skipping ahead a little bit to uh, uh, Diagol, his friend, finds the ring. Uh, at the bottom of a pool. Ironically, Smeagol's been diving into the wrong pools, apparently, right? Um, but um, uh, we get to, but, and before I start with this, I titled this slide The Master of His Own Lust. Um, that was a joke. Um, but uh, if you, but it's a reference, of course, if you remember uh, the person who's called the mistress of her own lust uh, is uh, Ungoliant in the Silmarillion. Um and uh, it seemed to me totally appropriate for Gollum here. But let me take a second to explain this. When Tolkien uses the word lust, it almost always... I can only think of one instance in the entire Tolkien corpus where he uses the word lust to refer to sexual desire. And even there, it's not purely sexual. I think it is sexual desire, but it's not purely sexual desire. Um, that one reference, by the way, is Morgoth conceiving uh, 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 lust for uh, Luthien. Um, but anyway, uh, everywhere else, whenever he uses the word, the word lust, the, the, the definition of the word lust just is desire. Um, so when, when Ungoliant, uh, when in that line of the Silmarillion, it says, but she was mistress of her own lust. Um, my paraphr- if I had to paraphrase that line in modern English, I would say, but she knew what she wanted. That's what, to, to be mistress of your own lust, it means you know what you want. Right. Um, you are the one in control of your own desires. Right. So she so uh, that's what I mean. It is it, it is it is it is in this sense that I mean um, uh, that Gollum <clears throat> was a uh, master of his own lust here. Um, OK. Then he came up spluttering. This is Diego, of course, with weeds in his hair and a handful of mud. And he swam to the bank and behold. When he washed the mud away, there in his hand lay a beautiful golden ring, and it shone and glittered in the sun, so that his heart was glad. But Smeagol had been watching him from behind a tree, and as Diagol gloated over the ring, Smeagol came softly up behind. "'Give us that, Diagol, my love,' said Smeagol, over his friend's shoulder. "'Why?' said Diagol. "'Because it's my birthday, my love, and I want it,' said Smeagol. "'I don't care,' said Diego. "'I have given you a present already more than I could afford. "'I found this, and I'm going to keep it.' "'Oh, are you indeed, my love?' said Smeagol. "'And he caught Diego by the throat and strangled him, "'because the gold looked so bright and beautiful. "'Then he put the ring on his finger.'" Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Prav, it is interesting, isn't it, that the murder scene is done in one line, right? Uh, Gandalf doesn't linger on that very much. Um, Karita, great question. Why was he watching him from behind a tree? Because he's creepy. Yes, exactly. Um, this this is his this is his nature already, right? Um, he he he's the kind of person who watches his friends from behind trees, right? He sees his friend come out. He doesn't run forward, right? Doesn't run forward and like, oh, Diego, you like almost drowned, right? Are you okay, right? No, he's like peeking behind his tree, like, what what did he find in the deep pool? Because we know. He has a thing for deep pools, right? So he got pulled all the way down to the bottom of the pool. So he, his immediate thing is like, let me hold back and see if he found one of the cool things that everybody knows apparently must be lying in the bottom of deep pools. And it turns out, heck, yes, there it is, right? So, uh, so yeah, it kind of pays off for him, but it shows his perspective. To me, of course, the most interesting and creepy element of this whole thing is the repeated, my love, Right? Um, give, he says it three times every time he addresses Diego. And by the way, the accent 
on the E above the, you know, b- before the A in both of their names, um, that's an indicator that the the, the 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 vowels are pronounced separately, so it gets two syllables. Um, it's not Smeagol and Deagle. It's Smeagol and Deagle. Um, that's what that that's what that means. Um, okay, so um, so uh, he calls him my love three times, right? And that is um, uh, really striking, right? Really striking, I think. Um, but where does, how does Gandalf know this, right? And Cecilia, great observation. Cecilia says, why does he speak differently from Diego? Um, I mean, notice uh, uh, Smeagol's grammar seems to be a little shaky even before he spends centuries with the ring, right? Uh, so he's not hissing quite as much as he's going to, but he's already saying, I want it, right? Um uh why why does he speak differently right great question um uh you know she points out Diego speaks in complete sentences from what we hear Smeagol's speech is already becoming gollumish yeah exactly um here's my theory remember where is Gandalf getting this how does Gandalf know this this is an incredibly detailed story. Quiet-handed, or quiet-footed, clever-handed people. How does he know? How does he know what his grandmother was like? How does he know about Diego? How does he know about the giving him a present already? And why would he attribute to Gollum uh, the words, my love, three times? Um, and I believe that the answer, of course, is... I mean, he, he says, he's going to say he learned all this stuff from Gollum. So here's my theory, Cecilia. My, th- my theory is that he's giving Gollum's side of the dialogue in Gollum's words, or closer to Gollum's own words, right? Um, he has to extrapolate. Gandalf is the author of Diego's dialogue. Clearly. He says as much, right? Because he says that uh, Gollum is a liar and he had to sift his words, right? Gollum never deviated from the birthday present story. He stuck to it. He stuck to the idea that it was his... So Gandalf is guessing, right? Um, uh, but he's not guessing out of nowhere, right? Gollum has told him some things. He, Gollum told him about Diego, Right? Gandalf is figuring out uh, what must have really happened. He's putting together what must have really happened. So Gandalf has 100% composed Diego's lines, but I bet you that he is basing Smeagol's lines on Gollum's own, own, own words. And Cecilia, I think that the diction there, the kind of Gollumish diction of Smeagol's lines is um, uh, is is uh, the kind of giveaway that um, Gandalf is at least basing these things on what he said. And therefore, therefore, I conclude that Gollum most likely himself, I don't, it doesn't seem to me very likely that Gandalf would totally make up from scratch the my love thing, right? I bet that Gollum said that. That when Gollum, when he finally got Gollum to tell him the story, of how the ring came to him. He called Diego my love. 
he recorded, he reported calling Diego my love, right? Um, and Gandalf kept that, which becomes super creepy in the context of I'm murdering you now, right? Which remember, that's not the version of the story that, or at least like, does Gollum ever, does Gollum ever cop to the murder, right? Does he ever confess it? He might confess it. That's possible that he does. Uh, but if he did, of course, you can see why. And you can see why Gollum would call Diego in his... When he's telling Gandalf the story, you can see why he would put the phrase, my love, into his own mouth, right? Because he's the wounded one here. I mean, he's the injured party, obviously. Right? Here it, here it was his birthday, right? Diego ought to have given him this present. Look how kind and generous he was to... Um, uh, look how kind and generous he was to Diego, Right? And here's Diego betraying him, right? Trying to keep this ring for himself when obviously, you know, it was his birthday present and it obviously came, you know, for him, right? Um, so I think that that's why I can see why Gollum would call him my love in his account, right? But he, um, uh, I think it's, it's, then really neat the way that that gets turned around. Um, and it seems entirely to fit that he would call Diego my love right before. I mean, you think about it. My love are the last words that he says to Diego before strangling him, right? And that's uh, awful, <laughs> right? Really awful. Uh, but fitting, it seems. You know, uh, there's so that may be Gandalf emphasizing the, the the degree of betrayal here. But of course, as we've already seen, it's not unlike Smeagol, right? Um, the, the character sketch that we got of Smeagol at the beginning there shows us his mind, his eye, you know, his head and eyes were downwards. And there's clearly a sort of a symbolic weight to that phrase, right? Um, he was already on this path. He was already a transgressor of boundaries. He was already you know, an intruder into other people's affairs. He was already willing to put his desire to know and to have above even the life of other things. Plants, mostly. But still, right? Possibly catfish. Um, yeah, so... Uh, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, so I think... Um, I think that's interesting. Now, oh, interesting, Rosie is suggesting... Rosiebug was suggesting maybe he was talking to the ring already. And Gandalf was reinterpreting it, possibly. I don't know. I don't know, but it does fit. If it's, if it's, uh, it fits sort of too well for me. Anyway, Gollum knows what he wants. Smeagol knows what he wants, right? Um, and yes, Harley, I agree. Gandalf's conclusion as well is going to be that deep down Gollum feels guilty. Otherwise, he wouldn't devise such stories. Absolutely. Same pattern, right? Gandalf will get to that. Okay. No one ever found, no one ever found out what had become of Diego. He was murdered far from home and his body was cunningly hidden. But Smeagol returned alone and he found that none of his family could see him when he was wearing the ring. He was very pleased with his discovery and he concealed it and he used it to find out secrets and he put his knowledge to crooked and malicious uses. He became sharp-eyed and keen-eared for all that was hurtful. The ring had given him power according to his stature. It is not to be wondered at that he became very unpopular and was shunned, when visible, by his relations. By all his relations, they kicked him and he bit their feet. 
he took to thieving and going about muttering to himself and gurgling in his throat. So they called him Gollum and cursed him and told him to go far away, and his grandmother, desiring peace, expelled him from the family and turned him out of her hole. He wandered in loneliness, weeping a little for the hardness of the world, and he journeyed up the river till he came to a stream that flowed down from the mountains, and he went that way. He caught fish in deep pools with invisible fingers and ate them raw. One day it was very hot, and as he was bending over a pool, he felt a burning on the back of his head, and a dazzling light from the water pained his, pained his wet eyes. He wondered at it, for he had almost forgotten about the sun. Then for the last time he looked up and shook his fist at her. Um, this too, of course, one might think that that last detail is uh, a little bit too much, right? Like here's, um, um, here's Gandalf embellishing a little bit, right? How does he know that he looked up for the last time and shook his fist at her? Except when we meet Gollum in the two towers, we see him doing exactly that shake. Oh, curse the yellow face, right? This is probably Gandalf rendering one of the, uh, undoubtedly at some point in his discussion, you know, when he was recounting this, Smeagol is remembering the moment when he curses the yellow face and desires to run away from her. Um, so, uh, so yeah, yeah, he's probably, that's probably actually a detail that was totally, uh, totally supp- supplied, uh, for him by Gollum. Um, uh, yeah, good, uh, good, uh, uh, Mitchell, exactly. Um, uh, she likes the line. He he uh, he uh, he he wept a little for the hardness of the world, uh, and she's saying so. Even then, he accepts no culpability for his actions. Yeah, it's not. He's exactly as I was suggesting in my subtitle here. Poor Smeagol, right? That's his line later on. Uh, he's full of pity for himself, right? Um, uh, Gollum is full of self pity from the beginning. He believes himself wronged. Right now, we notice how his earlier sort of inquisitive but transgressive behavior uh, naturally changes and deepens. Right as he goes through, um, as he goes through, beginning to possess the ring. Right, he takes to thieving. Well, that was the next step. Right, the next step from you know grave robbing. Right, the next step from robbing dead people is robbing living people. Right. Or robbing from fairies, whichever uh, it was he was doing in the Green Mounds. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, he's um, uh, uh, it, it's 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 the next natural step, but it's the next step, right? Uh, thievery and murder may only be one step removed from sort of what he was already doing, but it is a step, and it's a step that he takes as soon as he gets the ring, right? He becomes sharp-eyed and keen-eared for all that was hurtful. Right, he becomes a an eavesdropper and spy. Um, it's not to be wondered that he becomes very unpopular, right? And they suspect him. And that that image to me, uh, uh, to me the that the one image which really encapsulates Gollum at this time is they kicked him and he bit their feet, right? I just love that image of him biting their feet. You know, kicking at them, you're like. Arr! You know, as you're as you're kicking, right? Um, you can kick him, uh, but if you do kick him, you're liable to get you're liable to get scratched, right? It's liable to hurt. Um, that's Gollum, right? Um, crooked and malicious uses, right? Now he can find out secrets. So you'll notice notice that the um, uh, the 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 ring has 
fulfilled his dreams, right? I mean, the ring enables him to do, I mean, it's like his fantasies all coming true. What does he want? He wants to find out secrets. He wants to pry into things. He's inquisitive, right? And now he's inquisitive and also acquisitive, right? And now the ring gives him the ability, like a dream, to do all those things better than he ever possibly could, right? Um, he was already a little bit crooked and malicious before, the evidence suggests. Crooked, at least, if not actively malicious. Next step, right? As soon as he gets the ring, he starts going this next step. And in the end, now, his people don't seem to be treating him all that well, right? I mean, kicking him is pretty bad, really, right? Um, but biting their feet shows that he is uh, uh, this sort of savage, uh, you know, revenge that he takes. Um, and then look what happens. One more. I'm not getting through all my passages today, uh, but it's okay. We'll, we'll end after this next one because we're running out of time. But as he lowered his eyes, he saw far ahead the tops of the misty mountains, out of which the stream came, and he thought suddenly, it would be cool and shady under those mountains. The sun could not watch me there. The roots of those mountains must be roots indeed. There must be great secrets buried there, which have not been discovered since the beginning. So he journeyed by night up into the highlands, and he found a little cave, out of which the dark stream ran, and he wormed his way like a maggot into the heart of the hills, and vanished out of all knowledge. The ring went into the shadows with him, and even the maker, when his power had begun to grow again, could learn nothing of it. (laughs) Interesting. Prov says it's like a cultural evolution backwards, right? Uh, uh, Going into the caves. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, Cecilia, yes. Uh, the ring has more of an affinity with Gollum, yes, uh, who was already somewhat evil uh, than it does with Bilbo or Frodo, who were not. Yes, exactly. Um, there is a sense in which, in finding Smeagol, the ring is connected with a... Uh, <laughs> just like Anne of Green Gables would say, Smeagol and the ring are kindred spirits, right? Clearly, they're kindred spirits from the beginning. Um, uh, Yes, and Rowan of Gondor asks, I wonder if Gollum was in the caves before the orcs arrived? Yes. Yes, absolutely, and we have two pieces of evidence for this, both of them in The Hobbit. Uh, Number one, we know that the orcs were not always there in the Misty Mountains. They are comparative newcomers to the Misty Mountains because even Bjorn remembers uh, you know, at some point relatively recent in his own ancestry, the time before the goblins came to that part of the mountains, and he desires to return and to reclaim the mountains, um, which which is, seems to be where he's from. So yeah, if it's in Bjorn's memory, or even in the memory of his fairly recent ancestors, it's obviously it obviously postdates Gollum's entrance into the mountains. The other is the reference in The Hobbit to uh, the fact that uh, the goblins had come, um, and that he uh, 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 it, 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 it says explicitly in the, in the in the Hobbit that he'd been there longer than the goblins had, um, and so the goblins coming has kind of made it inconvenient for him. Uh, so uh, so yeah, okay, good. Um,
Gollum desires, he likes roots and beginnings, right? Um, and he uh, is wanting to go into the mountains because the roots, those roots must be roots indeed, right? There must be great secrets buried there which have not been discovered since the beginning. Um, these are the great secrets. So notice what Gollum is doing. What does this show us? He's still thinking in the same way, right? Same general kind of way, right? But he's thinking on a bigger scale. Initially, he was when he was diving in pools and burrowing into mounds, right? He was looking for um, things for himself, essentially, right? Like, his goals were sort of selfish and presumably, therefore, relatively small scale, right? Um, he would... Um, uh, he was looking for for treasure to use. Um, we don't know of any other obvious reason why he's diving into pools and burrowing into mounds, if not that. Um, then later, when he gets the ring and he escalates, what's he doing? Thieving, right? Stealing from the living instead of the dead. What else is he doing? He's uh, finding out secrets. What kind of secrets? The kind of secrets you can hear by listening through windows and, like, village secrets, the secrets of his neighbors and family. Right there, dark secrets which he could put to crooked and malicious uses. He could, like, I don't know what, blackmail people or something like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, um, pretty small. So now, what is this? What's he doing? What kind of secrets? Is, this is better than village secrets. This is better than family secrets. Right? These are great secrets. Secrets of you know, things down at the roots of the mountains that have not been known since the beginning, right? Secrets that have been hidden for thousands of years. The mountains are like a big, huge green mound, right? They're, they're probably greater treasures and greater secrets. Um, what does he want? What? Why does he want to learn secrets? What's he trying to get? You know, what does it do for him? I don't know. Um, but it's bigger scale, right? Um, his desires seem to get more grandiose, right? Now, as we know, it's not going to pan out for him, right? It's not, uh, uh, it's not going to work out the way that he wants it to work out. He's not going to discover great secrets. He's not going to become, you know, a sort of some kind of powerful lore master or something. Um, but, um, but we can see, it seems, how having the ring is making his, uh, his desires kind of bigger than they were before. Um, okay, next time, our focus next time is going to be on Frodo's reaction. We're going to look at uh, we're, we're transitioning from here to Frodo's reaction to Gollum's story, and ultimately, where I'm hoping to get to is Frodo's decision. I'm less than a hundred percent confident that we're going to get all the way through chapter two next time. <laughs> We may or may, we may not, but I want to look at Frodo's reaction and ultimately, of course, what the chapter is ultimately building towards, what the purpose of all of these stories are, is for Frodo to be able to decide what to do, right? We've, we've, we've begun the chapter with Frodo's questions. How long have you known all this, right? How did the enemy come to lose it and how did it ever come to me, right? We're going to end the chapter with Gandalf's question. So, what are you going to do?
right? And so we'll look at that next time. We'll look at Frodo's reaction. We'll look at Frodo's uh, decision making, uh, and uh, and that's where we'll be next time. But now. It's time for our field trip. And where are we going to go on our field trip? We're going to burrow like maggots into uh, the... To, down, down to Goblin Town, to the roots of the mountain. Absolutely. Um, uh, you notice I'm dressed in my battle gear now. There you go. Dresses for this hunter, my gosh. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> there you are. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're going to go down and we're going to find Gollum's cave. And we want to see how they how they depict Gollum's cave uh, and um, the uh, the Misty Mountains as a whole there. So this is where we're headed. So Okay, so uh, take it away, travel coordinator. Yes, okay. So we have captains um, already out at the campsite uh, where the mustering horn is. They've got their summoning horns. They've got their mustering horns. The person to send a tell to to get fellowed with those folks is Estelle Ali, you're the glorious leader of the casual raiders, the casual leader of the glorious raiders. Um, <laughs> send him a tell, and he will pass along your uh, name to the folks that need to uh, to uh, summon you. The lobies, 25 is the level that you can be, that's the, that's the max or minimum that you can be, to be summoned, but Estelle Ali also tells me that he has a plan oh, yeah? for getting the folks who are below 25 to our location. Okay. Um, Estelle, Ali, I think also, so we have some hunters here, is that correct? Oh, let me open up your mic. The, <laughs> the people under level 25 are going to have a bit of an exciting time in Goblin Town. They are. Oh, where'd yeah. you go? You're not in here. Where'd he go? He went away. I'm, I'm here. I don't okay. see your, I don't see your, uh, oh, there you are. Never mind. Let me open up your, so you could tell. So you've got, okay. there you go. Okay. So you've got hunters here, you have lobies here, you have captains already at the campsite. Okay. Yeah. So, um, whoever needs the summon, just let me know. First, we'll get the people who are above, like, at level 25 and above, and after that, we can uh, get the ones who are below and see if we can work out that uh, travel instance thing. You guys look like you're dancing together. Yeah, this is the, this is the, this is, this is the movement I make when I'm being summoned. Oh. <laughs> the heavens are calling us. Or it looks like I'm milking a very tall cow. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> trying to reach up. Or a boomac. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. 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 Okay, so you're here. Everybody's here. Okay. Trish, you you here yet? I'll be coming. I I've got my campsite bound, so I, right. I don't worry about me. Um, I'm concerned okay. about the folks that are in the, the hall here. So if you're sending, uh, send tells to Estelle Ali if you are 25 or above, and he will make sure that you get fellowed up and summoned. If, if you are below, I'll tell you what, if you're below if you're tw below 25, come up here on the dais with me so I see how many people we have who are, um, who are below. Uh, Erwin, oh, let me tell him. I don't know if you're in the Estelle Alley. Okay, so yeah. anyone just send a tell to Estelle Alley and I'll uh, invite and summon just uh, so I we can all gather up. I have so far as four, so, so far five. I have five people so far. I don't need to be summoned. No, no, don't summon me yet. Um, I'm fine. Thank you for whoever wanted to summon me. But I'm trying to get the lobies taken care of here. Okay, so I've got uh, one, two, three, four, five, six lobies here, Estelle Lee. Can you come back here? Or are you yep. able to come back? Here? I, okay. 
I, I can get back there. Let me just get the first the people who are. And then we have a lot of very, very patient people standing here waiting. But you There's... know, so apparently real dwarves wear short sleeves in the snow. In the, in the snow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just looking at Glowin here, who's looking awesome. So this is this is uh, this is this is the Glowin, right? Uh, since of course we know. Uh, remember, as I've said, the chronology of Lotro follows the chronology of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, so you interact with Glowin chronologically at about the same time during the Rivendell period when the Fellowship is in Rivendell. So uh, uh, so that's why Glowin is kind of in the area uh, and that's why you... because we know he's there at the Council of Elrond. So uh, uh, I love how he, first of all, is all white-bearded and everything. By the way, sorry, I'm, I ho- I'm going to chatter on a little bit. I'm hope I'm not distracting no, from the traveling. You, you've got the camera, so the yeah. And uh, and of course, but the other thing that I really appreciate is that his cloak is white. Glowin's Glowin's hood was was white in the Hobbit. White was his color. You know, Balin was red, and 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 uh, you know, and Thorin was sky blue. Glowin is Glowin is white. Uh, so I love the fact that they have him in a gold trimmed white uh, cape here, because you know. Like he's he's his color is still white, but he's moved up in the world. No mere traveler is good for him anymore, right? Uh, he's uh, he's he's doing substantially well. He's got his nice belt with a big old buckle, right? It looks like uh, looks like gold studs on his uh, on his uh, his 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 leather armor here, and of course the uh, jauntily bare arms, despite the fact that he can see his breath, because you know. That's uh, a dwarf. He's a dwarf. Hey. It's it's what you do. That's right. That's right. So the group here seems to be uh, diminishing. Although um, the group coming of, back for them of lobies is quite yeah. But the group there's also a group of not lobies that are waiting. But I assume those well are they the they no they haven't oh they they haven't asked for uh, or sent oh okay here let me tell them maybe just uh, give me a. Actually, just to send uh, Pravi and Atella, and he can summon. Okay, I'll uh, see. Oh, nice. Who has the uh, Who has the the rabbit named Blackberry? Automatic brownie points for everybody who makes a Watership Down reference with their rabbit cosmetic pets. That is a that is a that is that is a sure way to uh, uh, to please the lecturer. Lobby, stay up here with me now. <laughs> ah. There comes Estelle. So I just told Ooh, the group I'm... down below to to, uh, to to send a tell to Pravian. By okay. the way, Corey Pravian is our guide. Okay. In Glob- Goblin Town, they know how to get to Gollum's Cave. Great. But I said, but I said you must pace yourself with Corey. Oh yeah, you'll leave me behind in a heartbeat. Things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can go fast, just intermittently. Uh, 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 so it's not walking slowly; it's going fast with lots of stops. With lots of stops, yeah, yeah. Well, there's yeah. stuff to see there. I mean, exactly. It's Goblin Town, man. Now, this is not. We're, as I recall, we're, we're not at the Black Crack, right? This is the. This is the main. This, Mountain's this, Throat is where we're at. Right? Yeah, this is this is their right. front their front gate. So I'm going to go ahead and fellow Estella Lee with some of these folks. Anybody that will take my uh, invitation, and I'll just take them there myself. 
Okay. Exactly, Rosie. Banners and tapestries and... Oop. I don't want to stand right in Glowin's campfire. That would be rude. Let's see. Okay. Wow. Minkles, you were levitating an impressive uh, height above the barrel there. Wow. That is, that is impressive. <laughs> All right, we almost ready to go? Okay. Yeah, let's. Let's. I've got four folks here. I'm trying to reach, and some of them are AFK. And, okay. Well, let's so. let let's start in, and you can catch up with us. Yeah. We'll do some observing here at the very beginning. So if um, uh, if the black crack is at their uh, what their front porch, this is their this is their main door, I guess. There we go. All right. Oh, I'm just getting invited to... Yikes. All right. Um, oh, right. So, okay. So the clan... The the banner that we are confronted with right at the very beginning is this, uh, this lightning bolt banner. Which is interesting. Now, because... Is this just me? This is a lightning bolt, right? Does it look like a, a lightning bolt to everybody else? It's a jaggedy line anyway. Which is kind of interesting, right? Because remember that Gandalf does his whole fireworks thing when he sets the dwarves free in the Misty Mountains? So uh, I can't help but wonder, like, why, why would these goblins have a lightning bolt as their banner? Struck by lightning, Milthalio. Exactly, right? So I'm thinking they're like, remember it's been 77 years, which who knows how long that is in goblin years. We have no idea, like the natural life expectancy of, of, of goblins. So it could well be several generations since uh, the memorable occasion in which the dwarves and uh, uh, Gandalf broke in and... Um, and um, um, rescued the dwarf. So so we've had that we we've had that incident which has doubtless taken its place in in goblin legends, right? So uh you know, are these people like have they embraced it, right? They're like the lightning uh the lightning goblins? I don't know, maybe. Um that seems I, I can't think of any other connection, but then again, that connection between uh, you know Gandalf and the, his flashes of fire and everything. I also love the fact that they actually have heavy artillery set up right inside the gate. Right, that's actually kind of cool. Right, we, we, we've got we've got a ballista pointing right down towards the gate. These guys are not messing around. Of course, machinery of war. We're told in the Hobbit is something that goblins are particularly interested in. Um, they especially like explosions. Uh, so. That also seems like a very, a very, uh, a very goblin kind of touch there. All right. 
What else are we going? I should, uh... Oh, wait, there's Maven. I see you. You were just running around inside here? Oh, yeah, I was just running to get Bilbo's button. Oh, yeah, I see. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, uh, we tried our way, but it does not work. It, it didn't work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not I'm work so sorry. Yes, yeah, so so we'll the, have to... We'll have to the leave the buttons. We should switch over to, to Twitch to watch the crazy action. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so I will I will stop running ahead and I will I will I will follow the leader. Okay, Pravion, I'm ready. So Pravion, go ahead. Yeah, Pravion, is Pravion go ahead. I will, I will follow. Because I am <laughs> prone to but keep looking over your shoulder, Pravion, because you never know. Well, I will I will I'll, I'll mention it when I stop. Oh. Okay. Hey, yeah. Uh, okay, all right. We're not in a raid anymore. Okay. Yeah, we're not. We could be, I suppose. I was thinking if we raid it up, then we could put a we could put a shield over his head. Yeah, yeah. exactly. A marker. That's all right. We'll just follow the crowd as long as the crowd is continues to follow the correct person. Okay, so we've got goblin workers around in here, and they're uh, they're sort of pillars here. These little totems that are all over the place. I think those are are those wolves or bears? Do you think? I, the nose looks kind of doggy, right? Hmm. Kind of wolfish. I'm thinking probably, you know, wargs. Probably invoking wargs, wargs. you've got to think. Yeah, right? Yeah. Well, especially if you think about the hobbit with the wargs, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and a shrine. Yeah, one of the shrines. And notice whom they worship. A goblin. Right? It's a goblin. So they, 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 this seems to be a shrine of veneration, as one as seems to be from, like, the bowls and things, right? Um, so there seems to be actual worship that goes on here. But this is, like, an purely internal goblin thing. It doesn't seem to be Sauron, right? And that seems to fit with what we learned of the goblins of the Misty Mountains, who seem to be more or less independent. I mean, they're not totally independent. We know that they, they do follow Sauron's will. Um, but in The Hobbit, when we meet them, they have their own goblin. Is this, like... Is this like a memory of the great goblins of old, right? Who are, uh, you know, whom, whom they revere and who are in some versions, some kind of uh, 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 sort of different species or almost a different species or something? By the way, are you pointing out the um, artwork, the mobiles? Oh, the, 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 what, the skull mobiles that they, that they erect yeah, and stuff? Oh yes, yes, up over here with the with the bones and skulls and tusks and things. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay, sorry. We can go we can carry on. Carry on, Pravian. Here we go. Oh wait, hang on. I love this. Look at this. Sorry. I'm almost good. Look at the little goblin house. Notice that like hobbits. Goblins build their houses in the side of the hills, right? Like in the side of the... They don't build a freestanding house. They, like, burrow into the hill. There's something, like, quasi-hobbitly about this. Look at the warm glow of light coming from the coming from the window. And by the way, I think the light and shading is different from the last time I was here because I was on low-res graphics the last time I was here. Um, and it looks totally different. Look at this door. Look at the door. Look at the carvings on the door. It looks almost it looks almost like Westgate of Moria-ish, right? And is that a doorknob in the middle of the door? Doesn't it kind of look like a doorknob in the middle of the door? I mean, I think the parallel with Hobbit architecture is really interesting here. Now, obviously, it's all rough and crude, as, of course, Hobbit architecture is rough and crude. Not sort of squared away, right? Not, um, 
not uh you know, like with the turf ceilings and the uh, the uh, sort of uh, the awkward proportions and the the kind of the crude uh, uh, roofs and corners and everything. You don't see anything neatly squared and everything, but um, but the uh, the um, the goblins, of course, are are crude and not in 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 a different sort of way. Roan of Gondor suspects that the door was a found item, and that seems totally plausible that the goblin probably didn't spend the amount of time that it would take to actually carve all this stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's okay, there we go. All right. Um, probably. Probably not. Ah, here we go. There's probably with his blue shield here. Let me, let me take my floaty names off. Okay. All right, sorry. I just wanted to look at the, the domestic arrangements of goblins because, I mean, hey, if we're going into goblin town, we should look at the domestic arrangement of goblins, right? So off we go. Off we go. Ah, uh, the banners hanging from what appear to be cages for prisoners up in the roof. Absolutely not. Keep going. Keep going. I'm just going. I'm just uh, uh, commenting in passing as we drive past things here. Okay. <laughs> There's Maven waiting for us. I've been killing things. Aha. I've been clearing the hall out here so Sorry, that... I'm the advance guard. None of our lower-level noobs will be uh, slaughtered by the goblin thralls here. No lobby left behind. Okay. All right. Now, also notice just sort of the layout here, how these halls are... They're rough and they're confusing. There's no plan. There's no order. It's a very chaotic structure and therefore pretty hard to navigate if you don't know it fairly intimately. You will listen to everything I say. Goblin Goblin threatening dialogue is always a little funny. Though of course what goblins are mostly known for is posthumous screams. When you're fighting with goblins in game and you kill them, they carry on screaming for quite some time after they drop dead. Um, is there another one of these uh, one of these goblin shrines? Right. Okay. We're, we're still we're we're still moving. Where do they get all the red dye for these banners? I mean, it's obviously not dyed in the blood of their enemies, or or it wouldn't remain that radiant color red. Who's wanting us to listen to everything they says? Is that is that the bosses? Is it the overseers who are saying that? Possibly so. Okay. Oh, yeah, there's the mobiles. I don't get the mobiles. I <laughs> guess it's just decoration. Scraps of banner and random skulls and tusks and branches. What is this little fire bungalow thing? Is this for drying things? Do you reckon this is a drying rack? Like, why would you build a little hut over your fire, I wonder? 
I mean, we, there's a skin here draped over part of it. Is the skin drying? Is this part of the curing process, do you think? Like, instead of putting them out in the sun, you hang them around the fire? You'd have to think so, right? Goblins are very cunning, right? They're able to make things. They just don't make pretty things. And they, uh... Prefer to do as little work as possible. Okay. Down we go. As we continue to burrow down into the roots of the earth. Ooh, I see stonework. That must not be goblin work. Look at the oh, this is obviously dwarf work, right? You can tell. Oh, yeah. Look at the look at the the sort of the the knot work and the these clean angles. Yeah, totally dwarfish architecture, right? Okay, now we move to the right. We go right here. Also, yeah. there are, don't let's not forget the murals. Oh yeah, they'll be coming up shortly. Good. Oops. Sorry. <laughs> I hate it when I move my camera around and then forget that I moved my camera around so I run forward and like run sideways into a wall. It's always a little embarrassing. Okay. So notice though that the goblins didn't even make use really of the dwarf ruins. It's not like they filled them out because they didn't care, right? I mean, they came across some dwarf ruins, but they didn't even do anything with them. Ooh! Okay, murals! Now we get some goblin art. All right. First piece of goblin art. Hang on. Go away, eagle. You're in the way. All right. Look what we have here. So this is really cool. This is, by the way, uh, a really obscure reference. They got this, uh, and I am sure they did this on purpose. They got this from uh, uh, from the Father Christmas letters. Uh, so Tolkien was really interested in cave paintings, and that you know, and, uh, they you know they were just discovering the um, the cave paintings down in France and stuff um, in Tolkien's lifetime, and he was really interested in that. Um, and so in the Father Christmas letters, which are these letters and paintings that he did for his kids every year, which were supposed to be from Santa Claus, from Father Christmas, um, he um, he yeah. Uh, Andy Higgins was just thinking the same thing. Um, he he put this whole set of cave paintings on the walls of the Goblin Tunnels, and the style of the cave paintings here in uh, in uh, in the game are do seem to me to be very deliberately modeled after the ca the Goblin cave paintings that Father Christmas tells about in the Father Christmas letters. Uh, so okay, so what do we have? What do we have here? These dudes with the pointy ears are obviously goblins, right? Uh, you can you can tell because of the prominence of the pointy ears in the goblin sculpture that we saw before, like the big, huge goblin shrine, right, which was just like basically a cone or, or, or sorry, a cylinder, right, with a jagged, fiery mouth cut out of it and pointy ears sticking out the side of its head, right. So so the ears are clearly the major feature, and we have goblins and wargs, right. The wargs are rather better done. We see they not only have all four legs and stuff, but they've got fur and teeth and ears, right? Uh, so we've got the and, and we've got them carrying fire, not the wargs, obviously, uh, the goblins carrying fire. And notice we've got these pine trees 
here with the fire around the base of the trees. And then, of course, we have the eagles, right? The eagles with the dwarves escaping. And there's Gandalf. Look at the little wizard, right? With his sword and his staff there. Uh, and he's, uh, he's darker. He's all colored in, right? Uh, whereas uh, the other dwarves, what can you see about the dwarves? Just their beards, right? You can just see their beards and, and the occasional weapon. There's an axe sticking out over here where one of them has. Um, now, I wonder, do they have any hobbit legends? Let's count. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight dwarves uh, on this one eagle. Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. There he is. So this one is Bilbo. So there's one unbearded figure hiding behind the wizard, right? Uh, and that is uh, that's clearly that's clearly got to be Bilbo. So notice how accurate this is, right? They knew exactly how many because of course it's in the song, right? Fifteen birds and five fir trees. Um, so they have, uh, well, they've insufficiently, they've inaccurately counted the trees of which there are six, but, um, uh, but they have, they had accurately counted the enemies. So that piece of the legend has obviously come down intact. Um, and notice how the goblins themselves, they, they were throwing spears here. This one is throwing a spear up at them in vain, right? This one's trying to poke him with a spear equally in vain, right? Which again, that was in, uh, that was in the, the narrative, um, so yeah, I, I am, uh, um, this it's, it's so, it's interesting to me first, this is obviously, obviously an important legend among them, but Cecilia, that's exactly my question. Cecilia's question is why would goblins depict a defeat in their art? Yeah, that's a great question, right? And I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, uh, uh, I'm not sure why exactly they would choose to commemorate this particular moment. Um, but it's clearly an important moment for them. Um, maybe it sort of is showing, maybe they don't think of it as exactly a defeat. Um, but I mean, this is going to be a great moment of legend, um, where, you know, their enemies, I mean, if, if you imagine a goblin retelling, right, of this scene, I would imagine the goblins would retell this scene as like, you know, we had defeated them, but then they like fled and escaped in this like, you know, underhanded and cowardly way. And so they're depicted, the enemy is depicted in the midst of, like, their cowardice and flight, literally flight here. That would be my guess as to how, uh, how uh, uh, you know, a, a goblin storyteller would retell the story. Notice all the action among the, the goblins, too, right? The dwarves and wizard are all static, except for Gandalf. Gandalf isn't very static, right? He's like, blah, right? He's got his arms up. But the rest of them are, they don't even have arms, right? They're just kind of looking down and spectating. Um, whereas the goblins are all active, you know, right? You know, swarming around them and everything. So, uh, so yeah, I think it's, and, and yet, uh, uh, Milthalio, I agree, you know, the, the significance of this with the death of the great goblin, especially if the th my theory is right about their, well, my kind of very half-baked theory about their banners, right, with the lightning bolt, this is obviously going to be an important moment. And if that shrine is designed to commemorate the great goblin who is gone, you know, I think uh, um, that, that all seems to make sense. Well, cool. All right, so there's more. So probably, on, where's the next banner? It, it's just down this way, right? More goblin art. Where is the goblin art? We got three of these, right? Oh, here's the other one. Yes. Okay. 
All right, so what do we have here? We have a big old battlefield, right? Hey, one side, Casper. Okay, there we go. Um, there, there we go. Thanks, Casper. Appreciate that. Okay, so... We've got goblins again. You can tell on account of the ears. They've got the triangular heads, right? But the top bar of the triangle has got the ears poking straight out, right? So that's clearly... These are clearly goblins. Uh, these have to be dwarves. You can tell that they're dwarves because they're bearded, fat, cowardly, and incompetent, right? You can tell that they've got the beards. Notice they've got, they all got beards, roly-poly bellies, and look at their arms. I love their arms. Look at what they're doing. Like, this one is all like, whoa, no, right? He's got his hands on his head. These ones have their arms up in the air. Oh, we're running away. We're all terrified. Look at this one crawling like a baby, both of these two, right? They're like, oh, help, mommy, right? So these are the dwarves. And these are the goblins. So this is a big battle between dwarves and goblins. And notice, of course, we have this one big, huge king goblin here in the middle, right? This has got to be the Battle of Azanulbazar. Clearly the Battle of Azanulbazar. Um, uh, and so, which is interesting again, Cecilia, right? Because once again, we seem to have them depicting a defeat, um, <laughs> I love how this warg has a dwarf head in his mouth, right? There's only one warg depicted in this picture, which is interesting. Um, these, I'm not sure what these things are. Rocks? Is this a pass? It's designed to be a pass? Or the bridge? Is this the chasm? There are trees out here, right? Pine trees out here. So this is clearly Dimril Dale. Is this the gateway? Is this the dwarves trying to get in? Look at these dwarves trying to hide over here and these goblins hunting them down. Stabity stab down here, right? I mean, if this is the battle of Azanulbazar, that would make this Azog, right? And he is, of course, a great goblin. It's a little puzzling because the dwarves never made it inside Moria at the battle of Azanulbazar. If this is the entrance, right? If this is Dimril Dale and these are the gates of Moria... With, like, you know, the flames and spots, right, decorously arranged, um, then why would there be dwarves in here? Especially hiding down over here, right? They never made it inside the door. Azog was outside, and the goblins were all outside the gates. Huh. I really thought of that. This is another rock. Apparently these are other rocks. So this is inside Moria. And this is outside Moria. Because, of course, the only other option, if it's not the Battle of Azanulbazar, it would have to be... Um, it would have to be uh, uh, Balin, right? Because notice... Notice here. This dwarf, the one that the big giant hero goblin, like the goblin boss is stabbing to death has a little axe little, little dinky little hatchet really, uh, and a crown he's clearly wearing a crown this is a dwarf king here that's being stabbed to death by Azog um, 
Yeah, see, Rosie, I was wondering if those were burnt dwarves, too. But see, the burning of the dwarves was after the battle. The goblins were all already vanquished, and Azog himself slain by that point. So you wouldn't think the goblins would be depicting the dwarves burning their dead. Besides, these dwarves still look active over here, right? They've got their little pathetic, useless dwarfish arms up in the air, right? Of course, I'm, 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 I'm trying to characterize this from the obvious goblin perspective right here. Um, this could be Azog, and maybe that's Bolg. He's also pretty big. I love how some of the goblins have the red faces like Azog does. Is this like the goblin warrior aristocracy here? I don't know. I mean, I think this is almost certainly the Battle of Azanulbazar, but the difference is... Ah, could it be the Battle of Five Armies? No, because they're inside, right? Could it be the Battle of Five Armies? Chronologically, that would fit, uh, because if, like, if that were Bolg... But no, I don't think it can be the Battle of Five Armies... Mostly because there's only two armies depicted here. Um, that is, like, there, there would surely be elves, right? The goblins sure, certainly would not. Um, uh, I mean, if you've got the fat, roly poly dwarves here, right, with the useless little arms and the tiny little hatchets, presumably they would have scathing, some kind of scathing illustration of, of elves, right? Um, And yeah, Ben, I know, Bowen was shot in the back while looking into the mirror mirror, so it, I mean, it, it, it couldn't be a literal depiction of that scene. Yeah, exactly not a cat. No elves. That's just what I was thinking, too. So yeah, I think it's got to be as an old bazaar. Um, in which case, maybe that's just not the gates. Here. Um, yeah. Yeah, anyway... One way or another, one thing all of these possibilities have in common is that the goblins lost, right? So once again, they're commemorating a defeat. Uh, next, now, Urwendo is asking if it might be a sort of a goblin alternate history in which they win the battles. Um, of course, that's quite possible, right, that they tell the story very differently, I like that. Actually, yeah, let's 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 work with that Urwendo. That would explain this, right? According to the version of the Battle of Azanul Bazaar that we get in the appendices, the dwarves never reached the Gate of Moria, right? But what if this is not an accurate depiction of what happened, but rather a depiction of how they think of it happening? And how they think of it happening is these annoying dwarves intruding on their domain and being chased out. Notice these dwarves are running away from Moria. Right? I mean, like, these two emphatically. No, all of these guys, right? They're like, ah, we're running away from Moria. We're being chased off. So I think that that's the idea here. They're defending their turf, right? And in that sense, they did succeed, right? It's It might be revisionist to say that they won the battle, but it's accurate to say that they did succeed in because they did, did the dwarves retake Moria? Oh, no, they did not. Right? So, you know, it kind of works. It kind of works. Um, they, I mean, they, they depict the killing of the dwarf king uh, 
which of course didn't, I mean, he killed Thor, but not in the battle, but he did kill Thor. Um, so we kind of catch Azog in a good moment. And yeah, Azog is going to die later on. But still, from a goblin perspective, right, if we're rewriting the story from a goblin perspective, he valiantly died uh, repelling the dwarves, which he succeeded in doing, even though he himself was killed in the battle. So, okay, yeah, I think I, I, I think that this works. Cool. All right. Mural number three. Let's go look at mural number three. Keeping everybody irresponsible late, irresponsibly late. Normally, it's like midnight for me, uh, so uh, I'm reminded like that I should not go for four hours. But of course, you know, not even dinner time yet. I, I, I'm good for hours yet. I should still let you guys go fairly soon. But we got to get to Gollum's cave, obviously. And there's another mural, and here it is, in full color. Ba boom. Love this. The mythic figure of the lurker in the darkness. Somewhere down at the roots of the mountain, there is this. there was this creature, right? He's been gone for some time, but man, right? There's, um, look what we have. We have goblins, clearly with the ears again, right? And they are all worshipping him. They are abasing themselves at the feet of this gigantic creature who has a creepy tongue, forked tongue. Right? He's got a forked tongue. He's got fangs. He has these, like, hypnotic glowing eyes, right? He is crushing a goblin in his hand. And while his other hand, look, he just dropped, like he's dropping the broken corpse of another goblin out of his other hand, right? And his right hand has a glowing golden presence there, right? There is some power that he obviously has that they are in some sense aware of. I love this mythic depiction. And notice, notice the ground, skulls and stuff. They've sacrificed things here, it looks like. Uh, before the image of Gollum, right? Who terrified them. And we know that the, go- the goblins were aware of him, right? Um, that they were afraid and uh, that they didn't know who or what he was, right? Um, it does look like he's biting something, Sam. Um, and I think, is, I think this is his hair. I think they've depicted him with like both dreadlocks and a comb over, which is not a good look. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I don't know what else that could be, frankly, this stuff around him. And drool. The drool's fine. It goes with the fangs. I think that's his forked tongue and not the body of an unfortunate victim hanging out of the side of his mouth. But, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, the legend of Gollum has grown over time. This, of course, obviously is not a is not a, an accurate depiction um, of uh, of of Gollum, but it's really fascinating to show the story of Gollum that has grown uh, and presumably only continued to grow since he vanished. Um, he was this presence that they knew was there. They knew would sometimes come and invisibly take them. Right, that just goblins would vanish, and they wouldn't know why, but they had this suspicion. And I love this perception of the ring. 
right? They don't know that he has a ring of power. They certainly don't know that he has the ring of power. But, uh, you know, they're... Obviously, someone has seen him at some point or other. There's been a sighting. I mean, they get his googly eyes close enough to to suspect, right, that someone has actually seen him at some point. Um, but uh, but this idea, you know, his the story has grown over time. He's physically grown. They've ins- they they can sense it. Um, Ali, remember that uh, in the Return of the King, the orcs are aware of the power of the ring when they meet Sam, right? Um, they don't know what it is, but they're dimly aware of this uh, this this awe-inspiring presence. So the idea that the goblins of the Misty Mountains would, in some on some level, pick up on that, and therefore view the wielder of that power in this worshipful fashion, as well as um, as uh, um, you know, even even to the point of associating it with his hand, I think is really. Uh, I think is really cool. So this is this is a what I love about these things. These three things, of course, is not just the fact that they're depicting scenes that we recognize and can can place uh, from history, but the way that they have done this not only in an artistic style, which seems very plausible uh, uh, for the uh, for the goblins, but really gives us a kind of glimpse of of goblin culture and goblin myths and stories and that's really neat i just love that but all right we should go on before uh before it one thing i wanted to bring up i don't know if the twitch people can hear the music but the music here is evocative of the rankin bass yeah goblin town song yes i just wanted to bring that up yes yeah turn up the music a little bit all right let's head on to gom's cave The time's going to be getting increasing less, uh, increasingly less Europe-friendly as I uh, keep going here, so I should uh, have mercy on you guys at some point. All right, and here we come down to the very roots of the mountain. Of course, the cool thing is that if you think about it, that tunnel with the paintings on it would have been the one that Bilbo walked down. Right, because he walks straight down into this and splashes into the water. Look what we have here. We have Gollum's little boat, which he seems to have hollowed out himself. Right, it's a bit of a bit of log that he's hollowed out himself. This is what he would paddle with his own hands and feet around the cave. That suggests, by the way... Oh, yeah, and we have a bunch of uh, salamanders here. Which is, yes, protect the newbies. Um, So that's... The salamanders, of course, there's no real reference to anything like salamanders uh, in The Hobbit, but, of course, they, they, you know... The salamanders doubtless moved in after Gollum left. Um... The fact that his boat is here, by the way, seems to me to imply that this is where the riddle competition took place, right here. So Gollum came, or Bilbo, rather, came down the tunnel, right, in the dark, and he steps into the water here and is like, ooh, it's cold, right? And so he gets up, and, and, and so he must have gone around here on the beach, and he encounters Gollum in his little boat. Um, so this is like, it's like in situ, right? Where, where got, so, so the riddle competition must have happened right here, 
by this rock on this little beach. But we can go out to Gollum's Island. Right, we can swim out to Gollum's Island. Where Gollum kept all of his treasures. And what do we see out here? Of course, fish bones. Right, which we would expect to see. A fire. Here's Gollum's luxurious little pup tent, right, that he made. Lots of piles of trash and fish bones. Other little things lying around. Now, I wonder where he kept the ring. Because he didn't wear it. Obviously, he was not wearing it when Bilbo found him. Is there like a probably too secret. Right? The little, like, cubby or whatever where he would have kept the ring. Yeah, uh, Aragorn's asking how did Gollum get the wood for his boat. Well, the goblins obviously bring wood down, so in the context of Goblin Town as it's constructed here in the game, uh, there's wood all over the place, so he could just kind of thieve that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't think we're going to find a little uh, cozy ring hole, right? But uh, yeah, so this is where, so Gollum comes out to this island, right? And this is where he's looking around for his, for, for his precious, for his, for the present, right? And then he comes back with his boat and comes tearing back across the pond uh, to find and chase Bilbo. So that same tunnel up there, that same entrance is right where Bilbo would have fallen over and Gollum run past him uh, in The Hobbit to head up to the uh, to the back door. Um, and but there isn't any back door, right? They've closed up the back door because we can't we can't pass straight into uh, into Rovanian from here. We can't we can't come out by Bjorn's house. Yeah, I forgot about that. People sometimes ask me, like, what do I miss from the game? Like, what, what, are there things in the game, like, you know, in the book that I don't find in the game that I wish I did? Yeah, well, there's one. I hadn't thought of that before. The back door out of the Misty Mountains. But, of course, I guess if they gave us the back door, they'd have to sooner or later give us the Carrick, wouldn't they? Which is also, of course, a thing that I want. I really want to find the Carrick, uh, which doesn't yet exist in the game anyway. All right, Cool. Okay, well, I should let you guys go. Uh, this has been uh, this has been awesome. I love Goblin Town. I love the uh, I love the murals, uh, and uh, and just look how dismal and depressing it is down here, right? And this is where Gollum and the Ring ended up. So the the great secrets ended up living in squalor, alone, without anything to eat but fish and no one to see or talk to and uh, uh, nothing to gain, nothing to do uh, and this is Gollum's, well not quite his end point of course as we know, uh, but this was the end point of Gollum's own journey with the ring. So remember that next week as we, uh, oh, as we come back to look at the choices that Frodo is making um, and then um, we will uh We'll go on and we'll do we'll do some more field trip. By the way, next week, just to let you all know, we are going to be on Crick Hollow server next week. We'll be back to Crick Hollow, 
and we'll be back to the normal time as well. We're actually going to do a Europe-friendly time again two weeks from now, right, Maven? Right, two weeks from now. Yeah, two yep, weeks from now. We'll be yep. we'll be on we'll be on Laurelin, and we'll be back to 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 three p.m. Eastern time. But for next week, we'll be on Crick. So next week, which is the fourteenth, we'll be on Crick Hollow at nine thirty p.m. So cool. So I will see you guys. I will see you guys then. Uh, thanks for joining me again for uh, another fun class, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.